here. <laughs> it's not normally who you're interviewing, right? Right. And so doing it as an interview, it's a little strange. It's a little more, a little less relaxing environment because it's set up as an interview. And you got all the awkward mental things, you know, that make it awkward or something. I don't know. This is why Joe Rogan has less of a problem is he just gets high and drunk and <laughs> yeah, he'll just sit there and drink and, um, you know, have some scotch. I don't think he gets drunk, but I think he, he enjoys himself and then, you know, <laughs> maybe smoke some weed and not something that we do here. So, oh, can I get that? Is there a... <sighs> There we go. Getting that random chair out of the shot. Yeah, that looks good. That's a nice picture. It is a better shot. Yeah. Okay. These boards are awesome. I love them. I should probably use them someday. You can make a table out of them if you wanted to. You probably could. They're a little, they're a little curved. Yeah. So, uh, okay. I can just feel Robert walking in any second going, oh shit, they started. Right, you just feel it happening. Yeah. You ready, Will? Yep. All right. So, where do you want to start? Where do we, where should we start? Let's let's start let's, where, let's start where I a little bit about like <laughs> growing up. Okay. Are you growing up? Yeah, me growing up. Let's start here. When were you born? 1940 something rather. 1944 1944 may the 8th which was uh, may the 8th which happened to be vd day or ve day or something like that in europe victory in europe yeah, yeah ve day yeah and uh my uncle till was actually there you know he was in, in europe yeah he was a communications yeah. person and he was the second wave in normandy years later we talked about it after i got back from vietnam and he talked about his experience and it was he described it like um saving private ryan stuff, mm -hmm. you know that was second wave not even first second, wave that was a second wave it was still mm. uh, a lot of shooting but it wasn't as bad you know which beach he was in normandy so uh, that was o omaha beach o omaha beach yeah that's where they went oh. Oh. and uh and then it, we've seen i've seen pictures of him so like, he, he set up communication stuff and things like that mm. and that's where he met his his wife, his future wife, too, eventually. Was in France? Yeah, because she was French. She was born in America, but her dad was a wine salesman. Interesting. And it was, uh, Tillman is, it was um, uh, an interesting guy. He uh, he just kind of easy going, you know, didn't say much. He never talked mm -hmm. about the war. He and I talked about it after I got back from Vietnam, but he, um, uh, she, he did tell me stories, and Suzanne actually told me stories about how she was a, she was, was going to say the, that's where that's where Aunt Patsy comes in, right? Yeah, yeah uh -huh. and mm -hmm. she was in the underground and helped American pilots who were shot down escape mm. back to Europe, back to England, stuff like that. Wow! And after the after the uh, freedom of France, she dressed up in her uniform. She was actually part of the underground, which was interesting. So that's Till's wife. Yeah. Okay. So we have a in our family we have a rich history of people that were involved in the military. My dad was in the was was in the National Guard, but they discharged him because he was a machinist, and they needed machinists more than they need artillery. People. Okay. Same with Uncle Max, who was a little older too, 
But then uh, there was Uncle Deb, who was a merchant marine. He sailed all over the world as a merchant marine. So mm-hmm. all, all all the sons participated. And the, the funny thing about it, where we are working somewhere in these buildings is where my dad worked on those machines. Well, it's interesting is he probably worked in a lot of these buildings. Yeah. Because every one of these buildings was, you know, he was part of the Army Depot. Yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. And he made parts for whatever they were making for, stuff like that. So... There's a rich history of all that stuff in terms of that. But I was born in Logan. Mm-hmm. They moved to, and then he worked in Pocatello for the Defense Depot, which was he made, you ever seen a, a giant uh, ship with these giant guns on them? Okay, when you say ship, do you mean like a battleship? I'm talking about, uh, yeah, the USS yeah, yeah, yeah. Maine or something like yeah. that. The ones they don't like have. Yeah. Battleships. They don't do battleships the, anymore. The Destroyers really big and battleships. Ones, yeah. Well, at, at, at Pocatello, at that time, was a Navy base. It's mm-hmm. still there. The base is there, but it's used for something else. They actually made those guns there. Hmm. So they had these big, long, bored-out stuff. That they made these. And I remember going through that plant as a kid. So you're talking like the barrels. The barrels, yeah. They, they drilled out the barrels and stuff like that. Hmm. It's amazing. And one day they had a demonstration, which was kind of fascinating, because they had a, his armistice some day or something, and they had tanks out there in the field, and I got to ride in a tank, and I thought it was a cool thing. That would be pretty cool. So Dad then went from there to to uh, Otto Falls and worked with his brothers who started a business up there, and they helped build the Arco power plants out in Arco. Okay. And I was like mm. first or second grade at the time. So, okay, wait. So first or second grade... He was building power plants, or they were they were building the reactors uh, buildings for the power plants to to do nuclear. You talk oh, okay, so it was part of the nuclear. It's Arco, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he describes First. how one of them blew up. Okay, and it and it, and he describes it because they had to pick guys off the ceiling, you know. Oh, it was bad. And they used so oh, this was a rough one. Yeah, it was the first one we built. <laughs> we were building the, the Fonsbeck Electric was building the second one. Yeah. But these are dad's stories. And then all the equipment they used, the fire trucks and all that stuff, they were so infected with nuclear um, atomic energy. They're both. Uh, yeah, no, no. I mean, yeah, your nuclear waste or yeah, whatever. Yeah, they dug radiation. a big hole in the ground out there somewhere uh-huh. in our, and buried them all. The, everything. Just, just all the. Two big ladder trucks, ambulances and everything. Oh, they just, buried everything that went. Everything went. Oh, okay. They buried it and they. Tore down the building, buried it, and buried it all out. I there. bet they know right where that is too. Oh, yeah. I bet there's a spot. Yeah. Um, is, so yeah. like in Chernobyl, when that all went down, this is just anecdotal, but it has something to do with it. Like all the firefighters, all their gear and their kit is just down in the basement of one of the buildings. Yeah. They literally just stripped them off with everything, and it's super radioactive. Yeah. It's super hot. Yeah. Yeah. Which is and, pretty wild. And it will be for. Buku, long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah long yeah. time, very long time, till they figure out a way that they can actually just maybe harness that radioactivity, if it ever matters to anybody. But yeah, so I lived in um, I lived in Idaho Falls for a while, and then um, he was recruited by Boeing aircraft mm-hmm. at the time. And that's when you met in Seattle. Seattle, and then mm-hmm. like when I was second grade, something like that. Ever how old that was? So this would have been in the fifties. Yeah, in fact, I I was. Justin, around 52 or something like that. Mm-hmm. He went to work for Boeing because he was highly sought out. Because machinists were very specific in their abilities and stuff like that. Um, yeah, he was doing stuff for 
Air Force stuff, right? Yeah, and he was a little smarter than the average bear Reed was, so he didn't have to really do it. He was very precise about it. Mm-hmm. I remember standing on the tarmac at Boeing, and I was just a young kid. I probably was 10 or 12, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And they rolled out the B-52. Oh, a the big first dog. B-52, yeah, which yeah, they yeah. built somewhere in, in the late 50s. And I'm standing under that ship and looking up at the tail. The tail was like five stories high, just the tail Yeah, you're standing on the ground. Huge plane. At that time, it was, it was the biggest aircraft ever made. And they're still flying. The dang things are still flying. Yeah, no, They. what's weird is they might actually have a 100-year lifespan. It's So Will, right there, the Wikipedia image, that's yeah. the actual, that's what he's talking about. That second one over the B, is a B-52. The, yeah. The, yeah, that's a B-50. So that one's the B-52. Yeah, that's the B-52. Yeah. And they've reconfigured them. I had a... Uh, they've gone through a lot of changes. That Telfin, I think, actually caused... I could be wrong, but I think it actually may have caused some crashes because it was so massive. Oh, it was big. I um, mean, it was just so... The ship itself was just overwhelming. Like, I think that was one of the revisions they made. Like, they accidentally dropped, like, a couple nukes on the East Coast. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they didn't go off or anything, but um, I remember yeah. watching a whole documentary on it, and it was pretty crazy. They like have to be just, armed, yeah. It, it broke up in the air, and it was it seemed pretty crazy what happened. So my dad, I remember him talking about those things, and it was fascinating because it was the Cold War stuff. It was all about developing strategic strike forces by... Uh, yeah. Curtis LeMay was the guy that was over that. Curtis LeMay was the guy that bombed Japan, but he was the general that bombed Japan in World War II. Okay. He did all the firebombing and all the bombing. He was responsible for the Yeah, the, that was the all strikes. the stuff that, that where Robert McNamara came into that. He was the guy that was doing the math yeah. on all. Yeah. How I, many people would die if you firebomb Tokyo? How yeah. many people will die if we do this? And, and Okay, yeah. so in 1969, 70, 1970, yeah. I briefed Robert McNamara. Really? At San Antonio. No kidding. He was then the Secretary of Defense. Hmm. And I flew him around in my helicopter. And they says, What do you, I says, Well, I mean, he says, Well, you're a little better practice. Because I had to fly over some, some very high power lines and stuff like that. So I flew him around. And I got somewhere I got slides of him, me briefing him and wow. pictures of McNamara and stuff like that. You wanted to hear something neat about McNamara <clears throat> now that he's dead and gone? His like was his likeness was used in a video game called Call of Duty. Really? Yeah. Which one was that, Will? Do you remember? <laughs> there was a Call of Duty where you could be McNamara, Kennedy, and uh, Fidel was Castro. Black Ops. Was it Black Ops? Wow. Talking about the zombies. Yeah, it was a zombies level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a zombies where you where you were these you uh, uh, zombies were attacking you and you. Picked up guns. I don't think he had appreciated that, but he he, may not have. He was really happy because we were making, at that time, the military was not liked after the war, and he he we were doing that air ambulance system down in Texas Mm because there were no air ambulances in the United States except for one, and that was in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we were suggesting to them that they fund stuff like that so they could use helicopters to do that. And I started. Uh, I was one of the. I was the second project officer for that in San Antonio. My whole job, by the way, was n- not worrying about the schedule. The operations person did the schedule for the five hundred seventh mm-hmm. air ambulance. What I did was go around and talk to every Optimus, every Rotary Club, <laughs> hmm. all around there because it was trying to make the 
military a little better. And people down there are very positive because there's a lot of military in San Antonio. Yeah. And um, I'd fly out to these little towns in Texas and land, and they'd look at the ship, and then I'd go and brief them about this air ambulance program and stuff like that. So it was, huh. it was really kind of fun. I wanted to give a couple hundred talks. The reason I did it, because everybody was afraid to talk. And this one general asked me, he says, how can you do this? You're just so comfortable with this. And I said, well, I've been doing this since I was a kid, because in my church, you just get up and give talks when you're younger. And you right. don't think anything about it. So oh, I, was comfortable with, I was comfortable with that. Uh, you know, well, public I, speaking yeah, effectively. Well, I did the Rotary Club in San Antonio. I had former governors there, about every general, and because the, they all lived down there. So, and I'd sit around the table and listen to them talk. It was like a World War II story about. It. Yeah, I remember David Eisenhower when he used to come to the officer club, and his wife was really always drinking and dying. You know, hear the stories. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of interesting because that's where uh, Eisenhower was stationed was at Fort Sam Houston mm. when he was a lieutenant. So a long time ago. So we have one, we have one, there's one story I wanted to get in about you that I knew um, that you didn't tell in that time frame of born to now, wherever we are. Um, But that is that, um, this is a fun one for what you will, you'll appreciate this. Um, It's that one time when you were like a little baby and you like inhaled a peanut or something like that. You inhaled a nut, right? Or like a bean or something. Peanut shell. Peanut, that's what it was? Oh, yeah, it was a peanut shell. Okay. Well, I was I was on the bed out of Blue Creek, my grandfather's farm, and I was just a baby, and, and I somehow got one of those in my mouth and swallowed it, and it ended up in my lung. How did they find out that it was in your lung? Because my lung collapsed. Oh. And, uh, and the problem was there was no really way to save in babies. My grandfather just says there's no, because they didn't know anything. Right. My grandpa Olson says there's no way to do it, and to save him, but my grandma... Osbeck, who was a really tenacious person. Mm-hmm. Kind of emotional because she got a hold of a bunch of people and I found out that there was somebody in California, I'm not sure where in California, that he used what was then a, a, a scope that goes down, down the throat. And one of the few in the country, he was an old German guy, and grandma found out about him. She got a hold of the governor. Of the governor of Utah. Yeah. And because my father, grandpa was involved in politics and they got some guy kicked off the plane and my mother and dad flew with me down to California mm-hmm. and uh, took me to this clinic and my dad stood outside mm-hmm. and they put the scope in me, put a hole in the side of me and uh, pulled this thing out, got my lungs inflated and it saved my life. And you would have been how old? Like one, two? I was like just a little over a year old at the time. Wow. So uh, when they've x-rayed me before, they said, you've got some damage you're right. And I said, I know. Mm-hmm. That was the, that's the damage. That's what it was from. Yeah. yeah. It was interesting because years later, I picked a piece of shrapnel out of the side of my body from an, old, from an injury flying, and it was over the rib, but it was about uh, an inch away from that hole that they did. It was right close to it. Wow. The difference is, I my uh, my injury was into my rib, and so it didn't go into my lungs. So right, that, hit so. the hit hit the the golden spot. Yeah. So if you look at my side, there's a little red mark over there, and that's what that was about. I was um I was looking through some of our genealogy. This is kind of anecdotal, and I can't remember her name, but somewhere in our genealogy, one of one of somebody's 
mine or yours. I don't know if it's on your side. I can't remember. Forget her name. But <laughs> this lady swallowed a, a needle. Really? Yeah, one of our great grandmothers. I didn't heard that. She. <laughs> you know, I'll have to find it. I'll find it for you later because yeah. I always have to hunt through and like go through because yeah. it's like four back there. Trisha would know that. But I... she, yeah, she inhaled. Wow. She inhaled a. Um, she inhaled, yeah, like a needle. Wow. Because she she put it in her mouth while she was sewing. Yeah. And she actually sucked it down her lungs. The crazy thing is this thing was in her lungs for a long time. She lived like years with constant pain wow. and she got an abscess and something and eventually it killed her, but it's pretty wild. Wow. Yeah. I'll have to show her to you. I'll show yeah. her to you. It's pretty interesting. Okay. So, so, uh, dad, we're living in Seattle. And, yep. Um, Back to Seattle. And, uh, you know, dad, Jimi Hendrix was born there, right? Oh yeah. 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 That's a big deal. Yeah. You know, he was a paratrooper in Vietnam, too. I didn't know that. He was. No, I never, yeah. I never didn't he's pre- He's a pretty awesome dude. I've seen pictures of him. Yeah. And he, and he, he could play an axe like nobody's business. Okay, keep going. Well, Sorry. Uh, when I was up there, my dad went to work from Boeing. Then he was recruited by a group called Western Gear, which is still an active... Western Gear? Yeah, it's called Western mm-hmm. Gear, and it's still there. And uh, they would build highly specialized parts and stuff. So mm. Oh, yeah. Dad was very sought after and i mean they give him a piece of metal worth twenty thousand dollars and you have to drill holes all over and stuff you know so and he worked there for a bunch of years and while we're up there i uh i was i was like six seventh sixth grade or something like that and i was having some challenges and so mostly because it was rough neighborhood it was rough stuff you know and it was and uh so i ran away from home and went to utah yeah and they, there, there was a while they didn't know what it was. When it came down to it, you had, I mean, not to get into the depths of it, but you had some difficulties with your, your parents, right? Dad was a nasty drunk. Yeah. And, and he had and drinking problems. This is, I've, I talked to these guys about it. Like everything's always relative to like your yeah. parents, right? There's this whole thing like you, you love your parents. You still love your parents even though you're parents. And what's interesting is it's almost like generationally having a father that was a nasty drunk and was abusive was almost normal for your time frame. You know what I mean? Well, for baby, they, it was like, it was every, like a norm. Everybody drank and smoked. <laughs> <laughs> just how it was. Right. Yeah. And then it was like generously. It's like that changed. That's no, this is not acceptable. And now it's, now we've gone probably too far to where it's like, you know, helicopter parents and they don't, you know, we won't let kids go walk down the street because we're afraid they're going to get kidnapped or something like that. Well, it's kind of, the, it, the world is a little, a little, little far, nastier, but, but uh, in the, I lived up in Seattle and we lived in Bellevue. You know, hold, hold on a sec. Was, so here's the thing. You basically ran away from home is what you're saying. I left home. You yes. left home. How old were you though? I was like, I don't know, what's sixth grade? That's like 12. 12 or 30. But my problem was I was taller. I was like five, seven or so. I looked like I was a teenager. Okay. And so um, I hitchhiked. In those days, you, you could hitchhike. That's what okay. you did. You yeah. hitchhiked. <laughs> I, I ended up in a, I ended up in a, not far from Wenatchee, and so a farmer picked me up, and uh, and he said, are you hungry? Because I didn't really have much food. And, and uh, he uh, took me to his house. He had a big dry farm there, a big farm where they raised wheat. And I stayed there for a week, and the lady would have docked me. Because... Mm. Uh, and she just treated me like I was her son, and eventually they'd give me a bus ticket, and so I showed up at Grandma's back porch mm-hmm. some weeks later, and they all thought I was dead. They didn't know anything about it. They had cops and looking for me, and I, so I lived with my grandparents. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, they treated me treated me like their own son. They always had. I was always a special one. And uh, they treated me, and I lived with them most of their most of, until Grandpa passed away. Then my parents finally moved back to Logan and went to work. He went to work with Hill Air Force Base. My dad, they recruited him down, and then he mm-hmm. eventually retired and worked for the state as a tax officer for a sole license place up in Logan, something like that. That's the tax department. Interesting. You go down the basement of the old courthouse, and this is where they used to sell taxes, and uh, and they used to collect the the. You know, you sell license plate. That's where the license plate division is, we, mm-hmm. like we have here, except they're a lot more sophisticated. And they and that was in the basement of the courthouse, in a very small area, you know. Yeah. And Dad got a job because he got involved in politics and stuff like that. So he did that for a number of years. He was, and he kind of cleaned his act up. He was a lot better to get along with. He. he when quit, when did he kind of stop drinking? Well, like, did he ever really stop? Here's what happened. I, I remember when I was a kid, every once in a while, I sound like drinking a beer or something like yeah. that. You just sip a beer, but. Yeah, he was not. Well, here's what happened. There was a thing called methadone. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've and heard of that you, stuff. If you, if you take it and you drink, you throw your guts out. Uh-huh. So my my <laughs> uncle, uh-huh. my cousin, excuse me, who was a doctor, Scablin gave my mother these pills and she'd put it in his sandwich when she knew he was going out. Your mom would. Yeah, and then yeah. he'd go out drinking, and he'd come home throwing his guts out, sicker than hell. Nice. So uh, she says, well, you better go to the doctor see what's going on. Robert says, You're, you, you've blown your liver. You better quit it. So he quit drinking. Uh-huh. And if he decided he wanted to try again, she just... She would just do it, do it again. He had no idea. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, there you go, Reed. He was never told. So. All right. But he did, he did clean, and he felt a lot better, and he was healthier, and... Uh, you know, uh, probably a nicer disposition. He was a much nicer. I guy. mean, what I remember of him, he was a sweet old man with, yeah. you know, he was just sweet old grandpa. You he, know what I mean? Well, he did become a different human being because it's interesting. I was talking to Marshall Mell the other night. You uh-huh. know Marshall. I do. Pilot of mine. He calls me about twice, once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. He sits down in his basement, he gets two highballs, and then he starts smoking pot. <laughs> He's right just, now he's doing that oh yeah he says yeah. i sleep a lot better he's in a lot way. of pain though isn't he he's in a lot of pain he had a bad motorcycle accident, accident. He had a head, yeah head injury and he and he it'd and be great to get him down here i mean he would be hard to i know he's he has a probably terrible, not doing that well but terrible memory and he doesn't get around much but he and um uh he was saying what do i do with all my stuff but he was telling me that and i said well he's one thing about it he says people that smoke marijuana they, they're not nasty people they just go out and eat and, no they're just whereas yeah, alcohol they just want to chill alcohol can trigger in some people which it did my dad make him really nasty mm-hmm. michael make Dill, you angry yeah now till and max and those guys drink but they never they were never nasty hmm. or anything like that so it's just it's a genuine lot it's a thing you know so just something that he had going I, on. That's why I've never really been that interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah. Little I saw college. a really funny photo of, uh, it was in one of your slides I found of Reed. And it was hilarious because I had no idea how much he actually looked like a mafia kingpin. Like with his hairdo and stuff, and he was really tan, he literally looked like he could be in the mafia. I say that jokingly, but it was, I found it very entertaining. You're not laughing at all. No, because in those <laughs> days, those guys were cool looking. If you looked at the actors like like Earl Flynn and all those guys, oh, yeah. that's what they all looked yeah, like. Yeah, they, they had, all did. They greased their hair up and brill cream and combed it down with a little mustache. Mm-hmm. And that was cool. That that's, was how he rolled, huh? That's the way you looked. Yeah. Well, all right. You know, works for me, I guess. 
Till had a crew cut his whole life. <laughs> he he never grew his hair long, even after the military. He always had a crew cut. Always. Uncle Till, yeah. And Max, he was kind of like me. I just don't remember. So I think, where did where did those guys live? Did they live just coming outside of Well, Max lived Logan? in Logan. He I remember where Max down, lived. He just lived down the street from Grandma. Yeah. Till lived in Idle Falls. Max lived in Idle Falls when he had a business, but the business split up after Didn't a while. Didn't Till eventually move to Logan? No, no, he, he passed away up at, up in Idle Falls Hospital, and uh, oh. Uncle Deb was lived in, and him and him and Deb and Till stayed with the business. Max mm. took the construction part of the business, and went off and did construction. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, and it, I worked for Max when I was younger. And I, that's how I got interested in flying because he would come and get me when I was in high school and take me in, in the summertime. That was my summer job for. What for, got what got him into flying? Max, he yeah. he did it in World War II. He was a kid. He started real young, and so he just liked to do it. And he he was flying his old crates when he was in World War II. And he just, you know, and that got me interested in flying. I, so he wasn't he didn't fly like fighters or anything. No, like that. no, he was just a private pilot. But oh, okay, if you got in a plane with him, he'd say take the plane over. You know, and mm -hmm. um, uh, and so I went up with him once. So I was used to f I was, was used to, when terrifying. I started flying. I did my basic flying. Mm -hmm. I could already fly because he had taught me how to fly. So the, uh, in ROTC they had this flight program, and I went out. there. And the guy knew me, and he knew Max, and so because his hang was right next to Max, so hmm. that's why I, most people don't solo for at least ten or twelve hours. I was like four hours, and I soloed. So hmm. yeah, because I'd already been flying. The difference was that. Max's plane was a 182 Cessna, and the flight, the trainer plane was a 150, a little smaller aircraft. They, they're basically the same. You know, you start them the same. So that's kind of where you, okay. So, so that's, that's where, where you I got interested in flying. flying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was kind of like in high school. So there was a point, there's a few things that happened in high school, like you guys owned a Bobcat. That happened. That's cool. Um, that was dad's pet. Yeah. Yep. He's a, big, he's a big cat. He was a pretty big kid. He's like a 40 he's pictures of him. He's like a 40 pound cat. We called yeah. him Bob, right? That yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. He was, yeah. That was his name, correct? By the way, I found out what happened to him. What happened after, to him? After, after he became ago. taxidermied. Yeah. He is the, he is the mascot <laughs> he's at, the North, ma at Northridge High School in Logan. Oh, really? There. Yeah. <laughs> the one of the, oh, okay. Yeah. He was it, no, was it Skyview? Skyview. He eventually passed away and, uh, and he's the mascot of school. <laughs> wow. He's stuffed in the school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw him you, when I was a kid. Oh, that's right. You were there. He yeah. was stuffed. Yeah. I didn't know that was him. Yeah. But okay. That's a family set. Well. And he would he would keep the dogs off the yard. I would imagine. If he was out there and he would put them on a chain. He he didn't he didn't tolerate dogs coming through our yard. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter what size they were. And he didn't have any claws. We took the claws out. Probably a good thing. Uh, yeah. I've watched plenty of videos of those kill snakes and they literally beat them to death with their paws. Yeah. Yeah. They're powerful. Like, yeah. 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 He was, he was interesting. He wasn't like a normal cat, but, um, Trissa got, <laughs> Trissa mm -hmm. used to, I had a friend one time. He's, he was in the house and the, the, our, our, um, fridge was on the kind of on the back porch at the door because a smaller mm -hmm. kitchen and the cat got up from the basement and was up on top of the fridge and this don his name was don davis came through the back door the cat hit him on the head with his paw just whopped him yeah you could hear you could hear him screaming <laughs> <on the street. laughs> like ah. how old was he 
He was a teenager. Oh probably, yeah, right. Yeah. He, he was, was in kid. high school. Yeah. High school. Okay, yeah. that would yeah. freak your beans. Yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, you're not used to this thing. Yeah, and you couldn't have a tree around. He'd climb a Christmas tree. He'd just tear it to pieces. So we oh. keep him downstairs. We got his own tree, so he could have. This is this tree. is why we don't get kitties like this. Like nowadays, you can get like kit cats like that. They're, yeah. I mean, yeah, you but, shouldn't have a bobcat, but they have ones that are like African cats that are mixed. I forget what they call them, but um, they look like they're a lot of fun. But I watch these videos, man, and these things are like they're still wild animals. They're gnarly. They'll smack people in the face and yeah, pretty intense. Kirsten's cat climbs a tree. If you have a cat and you have a Christmas tree, you're gonna have a yeah, cat. It's just gonna it. happen. Yeah, you saw that picture Stephen sent out with all those little pads with cats in them. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was clever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I went to. I came back and I was in. Uh, uh, I went to junior high in Logan, and then and then to. Um, uh, I played basketball, by the way, on the team in, high, mm -hmm. in junior high and in high school. I did baseball, but I didn't do any other sports. You went to Logan High. Yeah, right? I went to Logan High. Yeah, and uh, in Logan High, I had an ROTC program I got involved with, and, mm -hmm. and some of it because I had I was on the rifle team. I like to do that. You know, the good old days. Well, in those days, that was one of the way they helped train people to eventually become military people because it was still a good mm -hmm. good job to have. You know, so when I got into college, I got into ROTC in college. And it paid for my last two years of school, which was not expensive. But for me, I didn't, I didn't, nobody helped me through school. I had to earn my own living. Mm -hmm. and I did that by working in a grocery store, stuff like that. So, was it Smith's? Cleves Foodland. Smith's Cleves, didn't, huh? Yeah, Cleves Smith's didn't Smith's exist. Smith's wasn't even a thing. No, it was Albertson's. And, but I worked for Cleves. I, wor I, I worked for Albertson's a little bit, mopping their floors. Every, mm. he, 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 he was a fraternity brother of mine. And he was operating that store, and uh, uh, about every two weeks he'd have his come in and strip the floors and and re -shine. he liked shiny floors. And so now, now, now they just have automatic machines to do it. But, uh, uh, so and he'd pay me twenty thirty bucks, which was a lot of money in those days. That take care of my. I was going to say that's pretty good. Yeah, and uh, and you could eat the chickens out of the rotisserie, so you got some food at night. So we did it at night. Yeah. <laughs> You were, you were, you were getting yesterday's, you were eating yesterday's. Yeah. He just says clean it out. Yeah. yeah. Clean it out. And he was, he was, he was, his name was King. He was a really nice guy. So, um, I paid my way through college and, but I got into ROTC. That was at Utah college. State. Yeah. Utah State. Mm -hmm. Then I graduated and started doing graduate work. I was commissioned when I graduated, I was commissioned an, an officer. Okay. Okay. But I did some graduate work and then. I married Trisha, and then she got pregnant. So I thought, well, okay, I didn't have any money. I mean, but we were renting. How, how old would have you guys been about? I, that time? I was Trisha was like she's younger than you by like she was like four nineteen, years, and I was twenty two or something like twenty one or two. Okay, uh, twenty two. Yeah, I think you'd be twenty two. So we just didn't have any money, and so uh, going on active duty was a immediate yeah source of income. Made some money, yeah. So I didn't finish my degree there and, and uh, did a year's worth of school, didn't finish my degree, and then went on active duty. And they were pushing me anyway because they needed people. Okay, this is Vietnam's going on, okay? Yeah. This would be 68. Yeah, 68. So we got in a, we got in a Buick. We bought a Buick Grand Sport mm. with a Hearst transmission. It's a fast car. Neat. And we got orders, and, and I, I got these orders, and I couldn't read them. I mean, they were just 
military orders. I couldn't remember. I went down the street to this guy that was an RTC guy, and I said, would you read these to me? Mm-hmm. Uh, four years later, I could read them easily, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, we took off to San Antonio, and uh, he had a relative. Drove to San Antonio then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, he, he had a relative that was down there, and she invited. they invited us over to... Um, to their house when we got in San Antonio. We found an apartment to live. I went in and signed up. And I did something interesting. I went in a day early. Then uh, my order said, the guy says, oh, I wouldn't do it, but you can go ahead and sign in. That day, the day you sign into the military is the day you set your date of rank. Okay. And that means every time I went into a unit, it was went in the same time I did. I was a day earlier than them, and then that made me the leader. Oh, interesting. By one day. Okay. So yeah. just by coincidence, I ended up, because data rank is a big thing, you know, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I, we went over to their house, and it was just like an old mansion you see in the south with a big oak tree out back, and they're all toasting drinks, and they're all toasting George Wallace. And what a great person he was. <laughs> okay, give me some history Tristan on this. and I are looking at each other and say, George Wallace was the racist from the south that ran for... Oh, for president of the United I'm States. like, that sounded right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. In fact, you, you go to Alabama, there's a road down there called the George Wallace White Way. Oh, uh, is it still there? I don't know. I got to wonder if that's still there. But, but that, I, I've heard of all these things, right? Yeah. I'm like, George Wallace. I'm like, okay. I was pretty sure you were going to say he's a racist, but I didn't. I wasn't sure. Yeah. <laughs> I got stopped by Highway Patrol one time. I wanted to know if I had donated to his deal. And I said, well, I'm from Utah. So it's not, you know, he, if I'd have gotten a sticker, my dad would have taken my bumper off to get that sticker. But if I'd got a sticker on, I never got a ticket. See, so. That's, uh, that's pretty crazy. That's very, um, I don't know. Yeah. So what, what do you call that? Mafioso almost? It's but it's, they it's not. It's yeah, the South how they roll. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. we was in a place called Fort Rucker, Alabama. Here's the thing. Okay. And and we gotta look at the time frame this is yeah, because this, you're this is the this is the later sixties. Yeah, the sixties. Civil rights movement, it's happened, right? Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? We went through when we went we went to first uh, part of flight school was in Mineral Wells, Texas, which mm-hmm. is which is west of Dallas Fort Worth. And then you, you flew the smaller ships, and there are just hundreds of them flying around. Then the second phase, you, you, you transition to the Hueys, the bigger ones. So mm-hmm. you go to Fort Rucker, Alabama. On the way to Fort Rucker, Alabama, we stopped at a town called Meridian, Mississippi. Which, okay. Which two weeks before that, they'd had a, demon, a national march. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we went over to the restaurant, and they just loved Robert. He was just the cutest little thing. He was about six eight months old six months old so mm-hmm. they just loved Robert. he's the cutest little thing and they and they just tended him while we ate and stuff like that so it was weird they treated they treated white folks different when you you're talking to, you, so the restaurant you went to was full of black folks is what you're saying yeah yeah they're just wonderful and they, they were just, just perfectly fine yeah, sweet fine. people yeah and i was yeah. going i was really nervous i had a lizard kid and they're just wonderful people and uh and when you get in the South, there are poor people. There are poor white people, and there are poor black people. Yeah. At that time, there were still segregated schools. We used to go play basketball in some of these. The nice schools were the worst school you've ever seen in your life. Even though segregation was technically yeah. over, right? And the I black mean, school was even worse. So, uh, yeah, it's because yeah. they, yeah. They just hadn't got around to it, you know? Well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's where this whole thing, which is very popular, which does have some relevance, the whole, because the, the, what they, what they deem systemic racism, right? 
that's where it has its relevance. That's a very common big term these days is systemic racism, like the system's been created. I don't know that the system's necessarily, I personally don't know that the system's been created, but I think it's just as a result of how nature has developed itself, how things have happened, because back then it probably was, right? But it's just like, we haven't quite cleared it yet. And, you, and it's just kind of the nature well, of the beast, unfortunately. It was a cultural thing. And you got to remember then, there were still people alive that had fought in the Civil War. Uh, oh, that's an interesting thought. And, and remember that. And so the cultural part of the South was still, had created a culture and they hadn't changed in 100 years. And it's still, um, you still go into places in the South that it's, they don't say it, but it's, it's culturally weird. Yeah. Right? yeah. No, there's still got a, well. The historical yeah. part of it is just there. Well, it's the same thing as the, if you go on the there's still there's still statues and places of yeah you know yeah. and i don't see i'm whatever. not afraid of history because history teaches you something yeah and, i'm not either i think i think it's great to have statues like uh who is it? andrew jackson okay. i think it's great to have his statue because i would rather have my kids and look at that statue and go what does that yeah. you know who is this guy and i can tell him all about how good and terrible he was at yeah. the same time because he was a pretty terrible person well, i right? went to, i went to his house Andrew Jackson's? Yeah, next to his house was where the slaves lived. Yeah. Yeah, the yachts. And the own, that's the whole thing. Is like, slaves, yeah. Unfortunately, it's like history's history. My biggest fear with history, I mean, we're kind of getting off on a tangent here, but my biggest fear with, with people wanting to degrade or slow down or, or change these components of history is that it's, it's one of those where it's like, what happens when we go too far and we erase these segments of history and we lose the potential value of knowing what's bad yep. and what's wrong and why we shouldn't do things certain ways. Well, they don't teach in school anyway. So that, I, mean, I personally believe we have some of the dumbest generations in the world. <laughs> knowing knowing yeah. history and knowing... Um, knowing the details of history. Yeah, and they change it too, and they want to change it. So that there's a challenge there. But let, being in the South was interesting for us, Tristan and I. We met a lot of good friends down there. And, it, and it, you know, I had a friend who was... Uh, I can't think of his name right now. He was stationed there, and he was at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And I said, come to dinner sometime. And he says, and he was going to get married. And he says, no, I ain't going to leave post. He's black, big, tall, six-foot-three black guy. Uh -huh. Sweetest man you ever met in your life. And I had to go get him off the post and drive him to my apartment, which was off post, because he didn't want to leave post because he was in the South. So that's that's the kind of world they lived under. Yeah. See, this is what becomes, it becomes days, yeah. extremely foreign when you live, even on a historical level, we live in Utah, I grew up in Utah, even historically, Utah has some component pieces with Mormonism, particularly that, that from an outside view, they appear racist, right? And in yeah. some senses, they kind of were, you know, yeah. they pretty much were. A lot of more. But the thing about it is, it's like, they, they were totally foreign to me growing up. Now, I'm born in the 70s. And so, I'm growing up in a generation where we had Sesame Street, and we had you know, um, Mr. Rogers, that was us when we were young, but then yeah. it's like, then you've got, um, Michael Jordan, right. You've got all these exceptional black athletes and, and people like that. And I remember when I was in sixth grade, I was looking around our, I don't know why, but they had us all line up around the lunchroom in sixth grade and we're all standing in line and we're waiting for something. And I looked around at all the shoes um, of the kids and particularly the boys and the amount of shoes that were air Jordans was insane. Yeah. It was like, I'm like, 
I, I can't remember how many cents we counted. It was me and another kid. And I think like, I, th these are like, these are sixth graders. These shoes are going to last like, what, five months and they're going to grow out of them. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like at best, I'm just sitting there going, because you guys wouldn't spend that kind of money on me. You wouldn't, you, you're not going to buy me a $120 pair of shoes because that's stupid. I, I don't buy my kids $120 pairs well, of shoes. Well, you grow out of them when you're younger. Yeah, you grow out of them too quick. I so wore, why would you ever do it? Well, I wore Converse. You know why? Because that was they the were only, cheap? And that was the only shoe they had. They had, they had kids and Converse. Yeah. That was the, that I was wore Converse's too. And Converse were, because I played basketball. And they were the, but they were $20 shoes. And when, when I was young, they were a $20 shoe. Sell those, those. Right. Yeah, and Air Jordans were a lot of money. Yeah. They were last long time. So it's, it's interesting. You see that generational thing, but then you're telling me a story where it's like, that was a re that's a, that's a messed up reality to where you weren't comfortable leaving a place just because you were in the South. You know what I mean? Well, that's no, it wasn't gnarly. me. I didn't have Well, no, no, you, he, he, yeah. Oh Yeah. Well, when I was living in Seattle, about sixth black, grade, yeah. we moved to an area that had a really nice house, but it was next to a, um, uh, essentially a segregated area, a lot of black people. When I went to sixth grade, half the class, more than half the class were black people, okay? Yeah. And my two this best- This would have been in the 50s then. Yeah. And and uh, I was in sixth grade and it was a, it was an unruly school, but my friend was a guy named Hal Theus, okay? Uh -huh. I can't remember the other guy's name, and they were both black. Uh -huh. We were buddies. Hal Theus later, and I'm in sixth grade and this guy's six feet tall, okay? Yeah. And he, and they have a basketball team in sixth grade, and I was late there because they've been playing, but they let me play. I was the only white guy on this basketball team <laughs> in sixth grade, okay? Yeah. Hal Theus eventually played for the University of Seattle and was an All-American. Nice. Okay. I mean, he was an athlete when I was a kid. I mean, because met and I don't know how tall he got, but he, when you're in sixth grade and you're that tall, okay? Yeah. He could dunk it Yeah. in sixth grade. Yeah. So... That's pretty impressive. So I lived in a world where I didn't get did, all that. Can I just out of curiosity? Yeah, that was the thing. So in Seattle, did was that? I mean, I'm sure there had to be a level of where culturally people were segregated. Yeah. But was in comparison to like the South, was Seattle anything like the South? No, no. Uh, the meanest people I met in Seattle were white guys. Yeah. Well, of course. And the, the, uh, these guys I had around with, nobody messed with me. Okay? Yeah. Because. Because we were friends, okay, and the school could get a little rough, and I wasn't, I was pretty shy and quiet and stuff like that. And so, uh, anybody give me a bad time. The worst, I had one lady hit me one time because I looked, I was standing in line, and I looked down at her chest, and I noticed she had big breasts. <laughs> I was sixth grade. That's what she happens. Had, she had a sweater that was see through. Here, dude. I, and I it looked happens. down, and she spotted. She's what are you? What's she, supposed to happen? She slapped me in the side of the head. <laughs> I just, I was so embarrassed that she had caught me looking at her. And, you know, this is sixth grade. Okay? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it happens, happens to every dude at least once, man. So, yeah. But that was an interesting school. And then, and then they moved again, moved to another area. They moved into Issaquah, which was a different school. And by the way, the church we had in Issaquah uh, was, they have two wards there now, four or five wards there. But at the time, they they met above a uh, a uh, grocery store, 
that had a, a broom above the grocery store and had two rooms in the back and a little stage and that yeah, was, so the it was basically were they wards or basically branches that was a branch yeah right. and that's where when we went to church that's where it was you know yeah dad didn't go church mom and i went to church i always went to church even when even when I was younger, we lived up in the highlands and other places. I always went to church because people picked me up and because it was a scouting program and stuff like that. So uh -huh. I was the active one in my family, even as a kid. Nobody else went. So, um, what is how does this relate to you looking at a girl's boobs? I just, well, how did we get here? Well, because <laughs> we moved from there to get out of that. Dad, <laughs> dad didn't, uh, dad, the house was a nice house, but he found a house better in Issaquah, which is a beautiful place to work. And it was okay. quicker to work. If you live in Issaquah and where he worked, he had to go across the floating bridge and just up the hill. And so it was an easier place. So you got in trouble and that's why you moved? No. Uh, no <laughs> that, that just, what that me. was, was that was an anecdotal thing. Yeah. That just happened to, yeah. <laughs> happened to enter in the I story. Just remember when I got beat up in high okay. junior. That was the one time. I got beat up in grade school. But you got beat up by a lady. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Got I it. Don't remember Came her name. Full circle. But every time I see her, I go the other way. I, I, she's a tough lady. Was it this? This was a girl that was older than you, basically. Is she what was the same was. age as me. She was in sixth grade, but she, poor girl. But That's she was, rough. She dude. was as that, tall as I was, and she was a poor black lady. Didn't have much to wear, and yeah. I, I embarrassed her. And she well, the that's shit out of me. that's yeah, that makes sense. Okay. It all makes sense. So <laughs> yeah, so we moved from there to to Issaquah to to West Seattle and into Issaquah. So, and then I left from Issaquah down to. So we moved two or three places. Uh, when I, when I was in flight school, back to flight school, when I was in flight, flight school, school yeah. uh, the second phase was in, uh, o Ozark, Alabama is where we lived is in Ozark, Alabama, if you believe it. And after that, we went back to San Antonio, which they give me medical training. Like, and it's the same as a paramedic. They taught you how to do mm -hmm. needle. They taught you how to do surgery, assistant surgery. They taught you. And they give you the impression that you never use it. But they taught me all this stuff. You had to do injections. You had to do blood pressures. You had to do all this stuff. And you had, I had to learn all the vernacular and the words and the names and stuff. Because everybody uh, in the medical service has to have a basic part of that. And at that level, for me, was the, um, uh, essentially the... Um, paramedic level okay because yeah. when I, I years later when i took the test kind of emt-ish yeah right? when i took the test for the emt i got 100 percent with no question they just wow in in my basic class at fort sam houston when i first joined up i had this is an interesting story i was a second lieutenant okay okay i'd been through rtc i mm -hmm. had to march and drill i was on a drill team in college i knew how to do that stuff and the guys that were medical service corps officers, I was a medical service corps officer who were pilots, knew about me in the class. Okay, mm -hmm. they were really stationed there. In fact, there was a guy named Major Brady who was a Medal of Honor winner. Okay, he was there. He gave me my first flight in a helicopter. He took me out and showed me how to do stuff. Well, because they took care of each other. There was about three or 400 of us is all. And I was even, I hadn't gotten to flight school yet, but they took care of us. They knew who I was. My, my basic course into the army and medical service corps was about 250 guys mm -hmm. <clears throat> all of them but one me were captains okay because they were optometrists <laughs> 
and they needed okay. optometrists, so they give them a they give them a captain's this to get them because they needed to get money. Okay, okay. so they give them a ca and they recruited all these optometrists in the military. They didn't know crap. They didn't know how to march. Well, they're optometrists. They didn't know how to put their uniform. They didn't. None of them been through RTC. I bet they could say one or two pretty easy. That's a joke. Yeah, Did I get, you get it. that yeah. one or two. <laughs> so, yeah. I so I went to Sorry, uh, so I went to, I was I went in we lined up and this one guy that was in charge of the classes came out to me one day and he, he said, I need to talk to you for a minute. And this Colonel come up and he looked real serious. This full Colonel who's had an aviator to me. He says, these guys don't know how to march. They don't know how to drill. They don't know how to put a uniform on. You are now the company commander. I says, oh, congratulations. I says, I am a Lieutenant. And these guys are all captains. Says, don't worry about it. And they took me out front of them and says, this guy's come from commander. So my, I drilled them, taught them how, I go around and teach them how to put their uniform on and stuff like that. And they all, they all slew me. It took them three months to figure out that, <laughs> that I did not rank them. And then they got a little snooty. But, mm. but it was interesting. These poor kids just come on active duty and had no idea what the hell's going on in the world. And, stuff like that. and this is at Fort Sam Houston where they have the classes for all the, for all the, uh, ROTC, and I went from there to flight school, but I always remember that basic class was kind of interesting, and they mm -hmm. put me in charge because I had, I was the only one that had to march and how to drill. I had to teach them how to, you know, parade rest and do all that kind of stuff. And uh, and in flight school, you did it a couple of times. You did it a couple, you know, you didn't do a lot of it. And and uh, we had some Marines in our flight class who stood really straight all the time, and they were really, jar, mm. they were jarheads. They were really straight. And... Uh, there was two Old terminology. There was there, two Joe medical Harris. service officers in my flight class. Sixty nine six was my flight class, and I just heard some. To the... Oh, just the AC went off. Oh, okay. It just got it just got much more intimate. Yeah. <laughs> well, the in sixty nine six, my flight class, um, there was me and Don Alexander, and we were the two medical service corps officers in the. In the flight school. Okay. Okay. And we went through flight school together and, and we piled on together. When I got to Fort Rucker, I was walking out of a building one time and out came a colonel, full colonel, who was a medical service corps. And he says, Oh, hi, you're, I introduced myself. And they invited me to the Christmas parties. They treated me like I was family. Yeah. Where, where was this at? This was in Fort Rucker, this Alabama. Was in Alabama. Yeah, I had no idea. I come to find out it was a very close knit group of people because. In the medical service corps, you go over to Vietnam, and there was me and Ed Preston, and okay. all the rest of the kids, and I was an officer, and 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 um, another guy, and we we're all commissioned officers. The rest were warrant officers, or high school kids that went to flight school. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was like three or four hundred of us is all, and that's all they used for. They had other medical service corps officers, but they run hospitals. They did other stuff. I was a, I was a, in the flight program, so I was rare commodity in terms of the medical service commercial okay so uh i went so wait so you you knew ed preston before you went to vietnam no i met ed preston on the when i i uh i left the airport in salt lake city said goodbye to trissa uh-huh and she was she had robert and she's pregnant with her second with steven steven mm -hmm. and flew to uh San Francisco and, and took a bus up to the rep place, which was another Air Force base north of San Francisco. And I'm standing there and I run into a fraternity brother of mine named Budge, Ed, a Budge kid from Logan. And he, okay. was, he was a military officer and he, we were talking and that was the 
in, in going outgoing place for all the flights going to Vietnam. Okay. And then up walked Ed Preston, who was a cap, who was a major at the time. Google Ed Preston, Will. Because you'll, will actually, I Googled him. That's how I found I that picture. I got a picture. I got a picture. Because I Googled him and I'm like, oh, there he is. Look got, at that. This is, this is him much older. Yeah. But it was amazing to me that I'm like, oh, you can just find him. Okay, scroll down. It's not any of those dudes. Look for a military dude. Yeah, Ed Preston, yeah. That's I think so. Oh, right there. See where it says legacy over here in the bottom corner here, the bo your bottom uh, right-hand corner, that guy right there. That's him. Yeah, it's Ed Preston. Yeah. Yep. That's the, his obituary. Yeah. At picture, that time, but... he was a much younger looking guy and uh, well, he still okay. had the same he, mustache though. He would have been, yeah. So looking at this, he was a little older than you. He was maybe uh i don't know maybe 10 15 years older than you i think is what it was he'd been in korea yeah yeah he yeah. was actually fought in korea yeah so yeah. yeah he was he was quite a bit older yeah really so was, really nice guy and i i met him at uh there and we flew over together and then um well when you get to vietnam you end up in a repo place which is just just a place to sleep you know for the right. night and then the company he called the company and the company came and got us the next day so we didn't have to stay there very long before we got our assignments and he he kept saying you're going to like hey and i, and I couldn't understand the word and i said what is like what is a like hey you know and, and you know and um, i didn't know any of that kind of stuff so ed stayed at the company for a while and then eventually came up to up to uh, 57 but i went to the next day i went up to the 57th the 57th dust off unit correct yeah which was mm -hmm. a place called like which is north of saigon mm -hmm. on the thunder road and that and it's a michelin rubber it's a rubber plantation okay that they built um which is part of the reason why this whole war went down if anyone's wondering was the michelins well rubber that that you know well it was amazing because vital resource those rubber trees argument were, uh, yeah was uh uh, the Michelins were still hanging around trying to protect their trees. Yeah, so Michelin is a French family, yeah. I believe. And uh, the French is actually the first people that were battling that whole mess. And uh, then we stepped in to continue fighting it. But if anyone was wondering, you can look on it historically. I don't, I don't know. Oh, I looked at it one time. But of the, of I know the... that rubber is a very, it now today, even now, rubber is extremely important resource and so uh you can see why we fight some of these dumb wards you know rubber oil my dad you know. said it was about oil but uh, well here's a picture i'm going to send you and if you look in the background you can see all these rubber trees okay you're gonna you're gonna airdrop it over to will yeah all right yeah you can see all these rubber trees and they just carved an area out at, at that base there was there was a field hospital and then there was a mash hospital which was called must so you look at the background and those are all rubber trees because if you go out in the jungle there's the jungle is like twice as high as those okay. rubber trees are okay yeah and this is just our little place where that happened to be a ship that got shot up where roy got killed and they were hauling it off that's the one yeah yeah and mm. uh uh but the uh i don't have a picture of the mash hospital it, in in korea they had they call mash because that famous show mash mm -hmm. okay 
Well, they were tents in Vietnam. They created a bubble hospital that used essentially a turbine generator to produce electricity and and air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And they just had a big rubber, looked like a half a rubber tire, but they were, you know, 20 feet tall. Okay. Yeah. So those were the wards. Those were the surgical parses. And so and it was a very nice environment inside, except they, they learned to put rubber or steel wire on the inside of it because a, cause a mortar round come in and they'd essentially flatten the tire. Mm -hmm. So they had to figure out how to secure the MASH. They were called MASH hospitals, Marble Army Surgical Hospitals, mm -hmm. that's what they call them. And then that's where we would take the patients initially and then we'd transport them back to another hospitals and sometimes just run out of countries. Mm. So... You were in, grand total, you were in Vietnam for a year, yeah. right? Yeah. Not that we're going to skip over Vietnam because this is where there's a lot of neat stories to talk about here. But as far as um, when you, uh, what should we talk about with Vietnam? Because there's a lot to start with. Well, let's talk about flight school. Flight school was... Um, Before we get there? Yeah, it was... Uh, you spent a half a day in class studying okay. about mechanics and how things worked. And Here's the thing. You already had pilot training to a degree, right? Yeah. Now, two different concepts. One's a rotor wing, right? Yeah. But they do have similarities, correct? When you get up and fly in straight and level, it is. The takeoff and landings are different. It's a different animal. Because the first thing they had to teach you in fly school, you're in these little aircraft, and they teach you how to hover. Okay. Okay. That's the first thing you do. You spend your whole time figuring out how to, when you get a hold of the ship, and here's the ship, by the way. Here's what these look like. It's in With the training room. things? Yeah, this is the training ship. Oops. You got all this stuff? Yeah. I have these pictures. I... This is the ship uh, that, um, there's a ship that, that, that we use. It's called a Hiller, and it was um, kind of sloppy in the controls, but it was, uh, been used a lot. You get it? We get an image. Oh, yeah, there it is. Oh, Look. yeah, those. Yeah, the, well, that looks like the that looks like the helicopters from the TV show Mash. It is. Yeah, yeah. That's literally what they look well, like. Well, they had H19s and they had two different kinds, and this was the Hiller version. Okay, and that's what I learned to fly in. My first flight was in those Hillers. Okay. Okay. And the first the, thing you had to do is hover. That is. That is. <laughs> That is a motor with a with a few little pieces of aluminum and steel attached to it is what it looks like to you me. You gotta remember and a little egg. In Korea they use these head. things, they would have baskets on the side of them they put the patients in. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, the movie yeah. mash right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And later on they developed in fact I talked to one of a guy named General Ford one time about the Huey and he says they took a litter to uh, Huey Corporation and says, how wide do you want the ship? And he says, four inches wider than this litter's. Mm -hmm. So they built the width of the ship around the size of the litter. Yeah. And they're still using, they still use Hueys nowadays, I believe. I believe the Marine Corps still uses yeah, the Huey. Yeah, but uh, and a lot of foreign countries do, but then they went to the... the, the Black Hawk. Yeah, which mm -hmm. was a Sikorsky company. Mm -hmm. built the Corps. Big ship. They're amazing. They ship. are pretty big. Yeah. So... Uh, that was my first flight, and you, you spent. I spent uh, five hours in that, and the, even the guy then says, "Yeah, go ahead, you can do it." Where do you? Uh, where does it come in? Where you get your call sign? Oh, when you get to Vietnam and you become an aircraft commander after so yeah. many hours. Yeah. 
uh, your main aircraft commander, they give you a call sign. Mm -hmm. And they give me the call sign. The 7-3 was because I was the chief of operations. So that's, and I just kept it no matter what I was doing. So mm -hmm. that became my, and that became my name. And if you talk to anybody that was ever. B-7-3. That's what they call me. What's interesting about that is two things. One, one of my favorite movies, not trying to sidetrack, but this is good. And if, and if, and if y'all out there haven't seen this movie, you should watch it because it's a really good movie. It's called Super 8. Do you know the movie that I'm talking about? You've probably seen it. Oh, is that one where the kids made that movie or something like that? Yeah, the kids are making a movie yeah. and then there's like, I don't know, a train crash and I'm yeah, not going to spoil yeah, it if nobody's yeah. seen this. Yeah. Directed by J.J. Abrams, produced by Steven Spielberg. So actually a really good, really good film. Um, friend of mine, kid, Richmond's in that. Oh, hey. Yeah, he Did gets it? punched in the face. That's about that's about it. That's his big screen presence. He like opens the door and looks in, and then he got hit in the face by uh, I think it's, I think the actor's name is Carl Chandler, and uh, it may have not been punched. It may have actually been hit with the butt of a gun. I can't remember. Anyway, wow. I think it hurt because I think he got some oh, of his okay. teeth knocked out. So that was a little rough. But that's what that's what stuntmen's do. Anyway, what I was what I was going to talk about here. Sorry for this long. Um, no worries. Super eight. Um, in that movie, they actually call out dust off. They ever, they actually call out dust off seven, three. Really? There's a helicopter. Yeah. Flying in that movie. And I remember watching it in the theater wow. and, um, this is dust off seven, three. It says in, in the movie, I'm like, Whoa, what the, and it was, uh, it kind of tripped me out a little bit that it was the same one. Must and be. then coincidentally later on, um, I, I don't know if I was searching Facebook or something, but then I came across dust off seven, three, um, guy named eric yeah sebastian yeah yeah who we are now facebook friends with yeah um he got that call sign he got that call sign in uh, afghanistan that's it that was his call sign yeah so pretty amazing okay so we're in flight school you got through flight school obviously pretty easily yeah and then they ship you off to vietnam month later yeah after a little more training and then i went home and left trish and, and logan and then what was it like i mean here's the thing this is where where it gets really interesting i've watched documentaries on you guys and all that st the stuff that you guys dealt with but we'll do a timeout i gotta go you want to pause okay let's yeah, pause, pause, we'll pause. we're good let's... well okay thanks just to be clear too before we, because we had our little intermission there. Just to be clear, so everyone knows, if for some reason my podcasts end up going really big and a lot of people watch this, this is not like a Tim Pool thing, okay? It's not. It's cold outside, it's winter, and that's why I'm wearing it, okay? So normally, at some point, I'll probably have my normal head shown. I have plenty of hair. Which makes you wonder if Tim Pool actually has hair, if he's like balding, and that's why he's always got the cap on, or if he actually has hair underneath it. I wonder if it'd be probably hard to actually find a picture with him without the cap. I wonder if it exists. Okay. So anyway, let us continue. Are you, are you you're going to look for it? I want to see if it's... Your hat? I want to see... Yeah, no, Tim Pool... I just sent, I just sent Will another picture. <laughs> Who's that? Is, that? is he balding? <laughs> oh, no, dude. Is that legit? That's, is that yeah. really him? Yeah, that's him. Well, that's why he wears his hat. It is him. 
That's why he wears the beanie. So it doesn't shine so much when you're filming stuff. Yeah. Well, the beanie looks good on him, dude. I'm not, I don't, I'm not dissing this dude one, one yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. But he's, uh... <laughs> yeah, dude, let's take it. Let's, let's all, I didn't think you would be able to find it. I thought it'd be so well hidden, yeah. you know? So is that, is this, is this being broadcast on the podcast right no, now? Yeah, I put it on the you, it is? Okay. Yeah. We all get to see his. <laughs> it's it's real man it's real i kind of i kind of wondered i can see why he wears the beanie so I sent you two other pictures one of some young kid sitting in a helicopter get that yeah who that who's that show us to that picture i don't know where'd it go Oh, send it again? Yeah, send, send, yeah, send, send it, it again. Yeah. Is that it? Oh, no, that's That's my it. Uncle Till in World War II. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Dang, dude, that's legit. He's looking legit in that whole, that whole kit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I ever met him. He's a cool, he's a cool dude. I just sent you another one. All right, so let's look at, there you go. Who's that? So that is that is both William and Harrison. As <laughs> both of them, I'm so, pretty sure I took that photo. That is in a Blackhawk. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, maybe Sarah took that one. That was, Can't yeah, remember. or you went up to Jackson Hole or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They uh, were somewhere up there. Those guys came down and landed. I was like, whoa, it's right there. And I'm like, can we crawl through this? And they're like, yeah, go ahead. So we uh, we did. It was pretty cool. Okay, the next one I'm sending you, it has Marshall Mail in it. It's in front of our operations center in, in like a... So, by the way, you want to tilt these back so we can see your beautiful hat. Oh, okay. There we go. We want to see that combat veteran thing. Yeah, that, yeah. it gets me a lot of conversations. I really like it because I run into some... All, all you boys, all you old combat guys are all rolling in these so you can all, you recognize, can all recognize each other. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Well, I met a... I, I, was, in, I was in Sam's Club and I ran into a veteran. He's talking to me and he was in the Coral Sea battle. In World War II. Oh, wow. He was an older guy. Yeah. yeah. And he was a gunner on the Yorktown. Wow. And which later sunk at the Battle of Midway. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure the genealogy, but he, I don't know whether it's Coral but I know they had a big battle in the York, Yorktown they thought was sunk, and then he ended up in the Battle of Midway. And so uh, huh. he was on that ship, and he says, I'd love to spend a lot of time listening to him talk about those stories. You know? Yeah. You have some good stories, I would imagine. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of stories, by the way. Okay, so here's the thing about veterans that I find. A lot of you guys, it's hard to share the stories, right? Yeah, you tell and so, some stories. So to be very clear on it, like you've told me some stories. And I know it's, it's taken you time to even get to the point of telling these stories. If you don't want to tell the stories, I'm not trying to pressure you into tell stories or anything like that. You tell the stories you want to tell. What I find interesting about the stories is it, it, perspectively like 
I think that's one of the hardest things for, for particularly when you see Vietnam veterans, it's like, um, Vietnam veterans were the guys that took the brunt of the, the crap, right? It was like world war two guys were absolute heroes, right? Korean war was called the forgotten war, right? Because it kind of gets lost yeah. in there, but a yeah. lot of guys suffered a lot of pain from that. Um, my, uh, like Sarah's, uh, grandfather who she never met um i believe had a lot of suffered a lot of pain from that war and and it ended up you know he became an alcoholic and he died young right so um tragically and so war definitely takes a toll on people but then you fast forward to vietnam vietnam you hear all these just terrible stories about the crap that you guys took just because of the fact of that you go into war and it, the good part about that is i mean i think it protected the veterans that came after uh, because you guys took the brunt of the of the disrespect from your own citizenship, um, and so um, there's a lot more respect now, which is a, a very positive thing. But the Vietnam vets, um, it seems it's such a weird thing because it's like that war. You you look at like Band of Brothers, right? That was a great film or a great series. I mean. Um, Saving Private Ryan. There was a lot of really good, and there still is very good World War II based films, and they're always called the Greatest Generation. The Vietnam stuff, it was like the the ones that define that one would have been like Platoon and um, Apocalypse Now, right? The hardest part about those two is like Platoon was like, we're all in the jungle and half of us are whack and we're all dying and it's nasty. And then Apocalypse Now was freaking crazy and Marlon Brando, you know, doing his crazy thing and Martin Sheen, which by the way, when I finally watched that whole film, I was really impressed. I was really good filmmaking. I don't know if it was realistic, but what he was trying to get by, what he was really trying to show you about that time was very, and uh, that whole part where, where they kill the, that oxen, like that was freaking crazy. But the illustration of what they did there was like, I was like, wow. It very much hit the point. In, in graduate school, there was a kid there who was in Special Forces. Pull the mic forward a little better. It was you, in you Special. You back. You just got to pull the mic towards you. In graduate school, I can't remember his name. It was a guy there was in Special Forces. Mm -hmm. And we went to the show together in Minneapolis. He wanted to go to it, but he didn't want to go alone. I said, okay. And I, I'm not much on going to war movies. But after the movie, he told me, he says, I've been in briefings like that. I've been in missions like that. Really? Where they've went after some general or they've got his location or something like that. And, you know, mm. and I, when I was in Vietnam, I, I knew a guy who was a captain in the special forces. There was a special forces unit down in the Delta. Okay. Okay. And they were up by the Cambodian border, but they also at, at uh, called place called Navy Bentui, which is where we moved our unit to. In okay. The second half. And his name is Mike, and he, he was a captain special forces, and I knew he was going up into Cambodia a lot. In fact, um, one of the stories I will tell you was uh, I, when I get up by the border, I'd always come up his push, his frequency, and just say, call him, see how he's doing. Yeah. Because okay? he, he asked me to do that every now because he'd, they'd run into trouble. Well, he, he had linked up. We're down, imagine this, down in the Delta and the Mekong River's coming down and we're south of the Mekong River and there's a bunch of mountains uh, there. 
and there's a big canal that kind of borders the country. It's kind of amazing that the French had built. He was in some mountain ranges in Cambodia about, you know, 15 or 20 miles into Cambodia. He'd linked up with a, a Cambodian unit, and they were fighting together against Viet Cong, okay, and mm. NBA. Mm -hmm. And he says, I'm in trouble. I need some help. I need some ammo, and I need you to take patients out. Well, Dustoff doesn't. Yeah, you can't do ammo. We can't do ammo, but. I landed by the special forces unit. And they loaded some stuff off for me, some food, <laughs> some food for me. Let's 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 touch this real quick. Let's be real about this. The that all those treaties. That's all based upon what is it called? The um, Geneva Convention. The Geneva Convention, which they weren't supporters of. Yeah, they didn't support it. No, so, right. Yeah. I mean, what's the reality of this stuff? Is like you guys what had one hand tied behind your back and you were supposed to just well, follow that we weren't supposed to carry armor but the cab did cab carried yeah, armor. we cab. didn't we didn't carry guns uh guys with guns on it because it was too much weight but the cab did uh, yeah u.s cavalry did uh, and, so, and they'd call us now and then because they couldn't do hoist missions because they had too much weight mm -hmm. and you can't hover very high when you got two extra guns and two extra people and all this ammo okay yeah in a very hot environment with fuel, you get a lot of fuel on board. So you get 1,500 pounds of fuel. So you, you're weighing your ship down and then you try and hover three or 400 feet in the air. Well, this, is, this is jet fuel basically. Yeah, right? JP4, 13.5 mm -hmm. pounds. Okay, so I, I stopped by and got some food for them and whatever they needed. They just loaded it on. And it was really interesting because I took off flying. It was like a north, northeast, uh, north, northwest. And I flew across a big open area that was amazing. It was totally green. It was like you're flying over a, a field of grass that had been cut. Yeah. It was just beautiful blue-green grass. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. It was elephant grass. And elephant grass is higher than an elephant. That's why they call it elephant grass. Yeah. And I flew low, low level. But it must have been, you know, 100 acres. It was just amazing. It was, just a, it was a swamp area that this grass grows in. So. Yeah. And you, you flew low over this because every now and you hear a chatter because they can hear you, but they can't see you. And you just, you're over them in a second because you're, you're low level. Your skids are right on top of this grass, okay? So you don't give them much, yeah. unless they're just lucky, okay? Mm -hmm. And so I got up there and and uh, he was in contact. And so I dropped the stuff off, loaded a bunch of patients, and I flew back. I did it twice. And I, came back and then I called in to my hospital, which is in Canto, and told them I was, who I was bringing in. They said, well, take them to the, and I was bringing, I said, I got some uh, some soldiers from Cambodian Army. And they said, we'll take them to the Arvin Hospital. And I said, no, they don't go to the Arvin Hospital, they go to the American Hospital. And and he goes, what, what do you got on board? And I you know, he's real quiet. And pretty, and he said, let me get back to you. And then about, I was still flying it. It was a 30-minute flight, okay? 30, mm -hmm. 40, 40 minute flight. Time, about 50 minutes later, I got this call, and it was this different voice, okay? Mm -hmm. And he says, so, he called me by my call sign. He says, what do you got on board? I says, and he says, I'm where you've been. I says, I told him where I've been. And he's, okay, okay, and okay, thank you. And that was it. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I landed in the hospital in Canto, there was two colonels standing there waiting for him to talk to me about this. They said, what have you been doing? I said, well, I, go. I told him the story. And he says, okay, thanks. And that was all I said. Mm -hmm. Two weeks later, we invaded Cambodia. Mm -hmm. I think Nixon finally figured it out that we were already there. But the problem was is that 
they were just staging everything and they were causing problems. It yeah. was just a big problem. We should have done a long time ago. It's if you're, yeah, I mean, if you look at the map, I mean, Vietnam is just a sliver yeah. kind of coming down the coast, right? And so what they were doing effectively is going into Cambodia yeah. and supplying everything down and then coming in from Cambodia into the yeah. south. They go through the, what they call the fish hook and these places like that. So they had this easy access into it. I actually went into, when, when they invaded Cambodia, I was a part of the troops that went in. I followed them in. And we landed at a place called Rock. Okay, no, that's not the name of it. We landed at this place that they had moved through, and we, it was a little teeny town. I'm, I'm talking about 20 buildings or something like that. And I landed there, and it was cleared, and there were soldiers around, and there was an anti aircraft gun sitting there. And uh, one of my crew chiefs went over and turned it off. It was, it was, oh, wow. it was electronic. Hit it, and he turned it off. I go, okay, that's cool. I'm glad that wasn't working and they left it, you know. Yeah. And then we then we went to the this little restaurant and had lunch hmm. in Cambodia. And they were shooting at the other end of town, but it didn't bother me. And then uh, then I went in and flew some missions. Then I had getting low on fuel and I was so far in, I realized that Nam Penh was closer than back to the fueling depot. So I flew into Nam Penh Airport, which we already had a staging field in there. Mm -hmm. refueled and then you could hear on the radio nixon saying we won't go on more than 20 miles inside of Cambodia." <laughs> is, oh shit i think we went more than 20 miles in but uh we could have taken over cambodia if we just let them go you know and then then sheenook and all that shit wouldn't have happened but uh there's always too much politics involved in that stuff so mm -hmm. so i was there when they invaded cambodia and stuff like that and uh Mike was going to get me a sniper rifle, a Russian sniper rifle. He had had mm -hmm. some. I said, boy, that'd be fun. Those are cool. And he had a bunch on a boat, and our own gunships sunk the boat coming down. <laughs> <laughs> I never got my Russian sniper rifle. And he apologized all the time for me. He said, I'll get up there again. I'll get you one. I said, don't worry about it. But uh, So I did a lot with the Special Forces, and they actually had me. They, their ship was down, and I actually flew a mission up on the trail one time for them. Uh, this is something that you were not supposed to be doing. No, but they didn't have anybody, and they needed good pilots. And I mean, were you flying like a dust off? Yeah, it yeah. Was, I, it was I, a dust I off. Just flew ship. one of our ships. And mm -hmm. What had happened? They had a guy on the trail, and he got caught. And we just called him wounded. Okay, it was mm -hmm. a mission, and I and and uh, I. He was on a run, and you can when you talk to him, you hear him chatter because they they had spotted him. He they were they hide in trees and places like that, and on the trail and we report stuff. So uh, when I landed in this little tinny opening, he we you just you don't land, you just kind of get down there and you, you pull him on and you're off again. I had these two jets covering me. I'm talking about big jets, okay? Yeah, like a like maybe a because I didn't have any gunships. There's no gunships. Yeah, I had F four or something like that. A sevens or something. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. And and I they just you could tell they're different because they're in a canopy and they sound like hollow. Mm -hmm. sound. There's an echo kind of thing. And uh, he says, "Give me your heading on the way out." And so I give him my heading on the way out. And those suckers came by me shooting their cannons off, and you can see trees on either side of me blowing up. <laughs> and I go, and I'm shaking at it. I better be right on this heading because they, they made a pass and they covered me getting out, or I wouldn't have got out because mm. there was too many. The enemy had really surrounded this guy, and so he was happy they got out. Mm. But those those were fifty caliber or twenty millimeter or twenty millimeter yeah, Gatling guns. They're big, and so they take a tree that was ten inches and just tear it to pieces. You know, mm -hmm. so it was it was really an amazing mission. You know, 
and I got this guy out. So hmm. he was happy. This guy you talk about, Mike, was that really his name? Well, I don't. As far yeah, as I don't, you knew? Uh, yeah. That's what he told me his name was. <laughs> I, I was trying to think of his call sign the other day, and I forgot it, but it's a, uh, he was a Special Forces guy. And Special Forces guys were creepy guys anyway. They, they were always doing something that, you know, I'd have I'd go to the bar and they'd be hanging around and you'd talk to them, but you listen to them talking, they'd scare you to death. Because, I mean, these guys, he kept saying, "Why don't you go on a mission with me?" And I, I don't want to be around on the ground going doing that what you guys do, you know. Mm -hmm. And and I couldn't some of the stories you hear, then I say, and these guys are going back and they're going to live in our country, and you know, because it's it's very intense. It's more of these go, yeah. Their job is to go kill people. You yeah, know, my job was to go save people. So it was a different world for me to listen to these guys talk. Mm -hmm. And they, and they were nice people, but you know, I'm glad yeah. I was on their side. Yeah. So even though you still ended up in that position a few times having to Yeah. yeah. to do yeah. things you didn't like doing. You have to, you have to, well, you have to you have to take care of. Yourself. You got to live, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So flying in the Delta was unique because as opposed to up north, up north you did a lot of hoist missions. And so you'd, okay. you'd hover over a little hole over the top of a 200-foot jungle and you'd put a penetrator down and you didn't move and no matter what was happening, the guys, you'd bring them up, okay? And um, you, you had to be really careful with that. Uh, the um, the interesting thing about that, when you got down the Delta, it wasn't much jungle. And the guys in the 82nd when we joined together, they didn't even have, they didn't even put penetrators, they didn't even put hoists on their car, on their vehicles. We had them, because mm -hmm. that was a mission we got all the time. Down the deli, you didn't do that, because uh, there wasn't much jungle. Hmm. It was open so fields. Talking, oh, okay. It's just open rice paddies, wherever you can look. More agricultural area, yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. I, I will tell you one story. We were flying around one time, and they're burning this whole field. And the guy says, "We fly around it one more time." And I avoided this downwind of the smoke. And he says, "Would you fly around that smoke one more time?" Mm -hmm. They're burning marijuana off. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, "That stinks, guys." He says, "Yeah, it does." <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny? So it was pretty prolific over there. You could you could buy cigarettes those got with marijuana rolled in it. Okay, that's how. Yeah. That's how well, it was probably legal, right? Over there, that yeah, it was. It was just part of the part of the world they lived in. So, I'm, I'm going to send you this picture here. This here, see if it'll. This is a picture. Every now and then, you hear you get an airstrike, okay? And you, the B-52s would come along and do airstrikes, okay? And this is what it looked like after the airstrike. I want you to get that. Get it? Yeah, you got it. Okay. That's what a B-52 airstrike looks like on the air oh, wow. in. Okay. Those are 500-pound bombs that make those craters. Okay. So those are big holes. Yeah. And that's two sh two to three ships coming through. Holy cow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That is, that's basically carpet bombing kind of concept, yeah, right? Just, I mean, that's what it is. B-52 full of, uh, uh, with their belly full of bombs and they flew over and dropped it. Wow. That's quite a, that's quite a photo. Uh, you could be five miles away and your, your building would shake. You know? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yes, it is. We're still recording, right, Will? Can you check it real quick? Yep, still recording.
Okay. Good. CPU usage is good. But picking up patients was a was was our primary mission, and that's what we did. And we just uh, we just had to figure out. You know, you, you get a call, uh, you get a call, and uh, somebody on the ground would report they needed a dust off, mm-hmm. and then they'd tell you what the situation was like on the ground, was insecure or not, and uh, the location in four-digit, uh, eight-digit coordinates. Mm-hmm. So you know how to read a map. You better know how to read a map and where you're going. They didn't have, at night in Vietnam, the only lights that were really shown were a couple around the cities, a few of the cities like Canto and some of those. Mm-hmm. Most of everybody turned the lights off and it was just dark. Mm-hmm. And the only thing you'd see was tracer rounds and bombs landing, okay. mm. artillery and stuff like that. So it was a very dark country at that time. It wasn't, uh, so you gotta know how to navigate uh, and if the bad weather hit, and a lot of times what would happen, especially in the wintertime, the fog would settle on the ground two or 300 feet deep, and so you had to go fly down through it, which was really difficult because you didn't want to crash into the ground. Right, yeah. And, but they'd light a flare, and then you count how long the flare lasted. So if it disappeared before you counted 20 seconds or something like that, and it would... Do so you, uh, like, drop the flare? No, they would drop they the would... flare on the ground. It would be a lit, okay. be lit flare on the that would light up. So yeah. you'd have a, something to... To, tar- to target. land yeah. to. Yeah. yeah. And if it goes out before you did, I mean, there was a tree or something in between you and the flare. So. Oh, okay. And the guys in the ground would tell you what it was. Now. It's just when you... The first part is when you're in an area open, but you got a few trees around and stuff like that. So be, you had to be really careful. I've crashed into a few trees. How, how often did you fly missions? Like how often did it happen? Like, I, I, like historically, like the documentaries I've watched and stuff, they talk about how a lot of times you guys in dust off would actually forge their paperwork Well, because there was a limit of how often they could fly. And they yeah, were like, we, we run out of pilots and I couldn't get pilots. I, we were supposed to do 140 hours a month and, and then we just quit recording it. Most of the time I get 200 hours in. And I would I would tend to fly at night more than anybody else because I had to manage the unit during the day and there's two of them, and so I had to take care of paperwork and all that stuff during the day and I, and, it, and I'd fly at night and I like playing at night because I was good at it you mm-hmm. know it's uh, and uh, you just have to, you have to realize if you're in this trouble is before there's, the there's, days of night vision, correct. Oh. Way before the days of night vision. I mean, they, you just they keep did your have, eyes open. That, that was night vision. Yeah, they did have <laughs> like, um, I know snipers had like certain scopes that were like star scopes or something like that that yeah. used very no, little light, but no, that was about it. There's no night vision. We did have what they called paddy control, which was a, um, the Air Force Base guys at night, they nobody flew at night. So they had a, they had radar, they had a paddy control, which is radar, covered a bigger part of the delta, and they would vector us, so you'd get some vectors. And they'd say, you know, so you could just fly down there. You just had to call, when you flew in an area, you had to call the artillery and see what was going on there, because you didn't want to fly into artillery. And they'd say, coming out of so-and-so, max ordinance of so many feet, and you'd either fly under it or around it. You never flew, you didn't want to fly in it, of course. And you and usually if there was an insecure LZ, you know there's going to be a lot of action. Like one night we went up to the um, near the Cambodian border of these mountains. Uh, there was a big firefight, and as I came around the, the, this one mountain, you could see the guys on the hill were shooting. Okay, mm-hmm. and the guys down below would be shooting back at the same place. And I thought, guess which one we're landing at? <laughs> <laughs> and 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 then you'd hear you'd see artillery go off, you know, and you, 
and it was just, it would just light up the whole sky with all this. They put out flares and they do all kinds of stuff. And, you know, firefight is an interesting thing to watch. I found out that, first of all, the Russians had green flares. Uh-huh. Uh, not green flares, but green, green tracer rounds. Tracer rounds and stuff like that. And if they looked like the size of a football, it was a fifty caliber. If it was just smaller, they would just be just smaller. But if you ever have a, a softball coming at you that's green, you know it's a fifty caliber. But you're just seeing the tracer between rounds, and you'll see two or three of those. And between each one of those is three or four rounds. Okay. So, so they were stacked every every four rounds, basically. Something like that. And the reason the tracer is so you could fire at night and know where you're shooting. That's right. simple as that. It's really fun to shoot at night because you can see where you're shooting. The problem with that is when you shoot, then you're giving your position away. So. Right. But uh, we used to go to a lot of, uh, you know, you, you even, if you knew it was insecure LZ, you, you knew there was going to be some some fighting going on. So you had, to, you had to time it. You had to figure out how to do it. You had to... Um, and a lot of times we'd ask them to not fire for a minute, just maybe settle things down, and then we could get in and get out. And sometimes they wouldn't shoot us. Most of the time they would. But if there's a lot of shooting going on, you can't hear anybody or anything. It's just so much noise. So yeah. Even with the headphones and everything you got on. No, it's loud. You can't hear the guys talking on the ground, you know. Too much popping. And our rule was if, if you can stand up to load the patients, we can come in and pick them up. Okay. If it's too hot to stand up to load the patients, then you're making everybody just too dangerous. Too dangerous. So the rule was if you could if you could stand up and load it, we'd come in and get the patients and stuff like that. We didn't care whether it was what it was as long as you could do that. And mm -hmm. we figured we do that. Chances were pretty good, even though you could take a few hits. Well, and, you know. The rules were on on your ships, right? Rules were you guys didn't have guns. I, right? had a, I mean, I, you had personal firearms, yeah, right? You yeah. had sidearm That's and it. Yeah, maybe I, an M4 or something like that, but you didn't have, there was not a, it was not a gunship. No, no, there was not guns no, on the side of the ship. No, no. If it was an insecure LZ, we would, we would bring along Rebel 5152 or Viking 2122. Uh, Viking was a, was a, uh, a Cobra gunship. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'll tell you one mission one time. A guy got were, were these guys in the same base as you are, or a different, totally different base? They're, no, they're not near me. They're down the road a ways. Okay. Uh, uh, they're closer to Canto. They had a base down there. We were at the Navy base. Mm. And the Navy base had their own gunships, which was called Sea Wolf. And they covered, their, they covered the, the rivers and the... Uh, okay. And the, uh, the um, guys on the rivering patrol and stuff like that, they covered those guys, okay? Okay. Um, and they, they, their gunships were all Charlie model, uh, H model gunships. They're Hueys. Yeah. Hueys. So yeah. those guys all flew Hueys. Yeah. The Viking guy you were talking about the, 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 down in the Delta Cobra gunship. Yeah. Up North of five, one, five, two, which covered us a lot. He was, he flew, uh, gunships, Charlie model gunships. Mm, okay. And, uh, uh, so you had a little bit of both. Yeah. A little bit of both. Uh, what was interesting, in fact, I had a picture of a gunship in here that uh, used to cover us. They really load themselves up, and and I was I there was a guy that got shot down, and I was close by, so I headed over there, and the gunship uh, reb uh, down in the Delta said, "We'll we'll come and help you," and they they had got shot down in front of a bunker system that, that was armed. Okay? Oh yeah. 
and it actually had cement. It was a cement bunker ship, and they, they, uh, I said, this is going to be touchy. So uh, as I went in and landed near their ship to get them out, the, uh, I looked over to my right and my left, and those, those cobras never come out. Of, they never come out of altitude. Mm. Okay, they were hovering next to me. Oh wow. Hmm. which was a signal to the guys in the bunker that if you fire one shot, you're going to have lead flying everywhere because they would have just salvaged them. Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I was really brave of those guys to do that. And so I wrote them up because that was, those gunships at that level aren't as effective, but those guys were amazing. So those guys there, and the reason they did that is because if you protect the guys that are saving you, okay, then they're <laughs> going to do it again. Yeah, they'll keep doing it. That's why if I had a ship down and I needed a new, I needed a, uh, a, uh, a new rotor blade or something like that, these guys would dismantle their ships to give us a new rotor blade before I could get a new one. Because mm. it'd take me a little, way, a little time to get one. They'd just take one off their ship and hand it to me. So, And then when mine came in, they, I'd give it back to them. So they wanted to keep us flying. I only had six aircraft down the Delta. I had 12. But I covered the whole Delta with 12 aircraft, and and you asked me how much I flew. During the day, there's four ships flying at all time. Okay. First two guys will fly at least 12 hours, uh, morning to night. Uh, next two guys will fly maybe eight hours, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and then at nighttime, I had three up, first up, second up, third up, and the first two up would fly all night long. And then you're talking about flying all night, you fly 12, 14, 15 hours, because time you get back, it's a you know, sun's gone down, sun's come back up and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. and I would fly, I'd, and then you'd get a day off. Okay. And I'd take that route. I'd fly all the time. I'd fly, uh, but I did more, I'd trade out for night flying a lot of times, but that's why I have, uh, uh about 2000 hours of flying time. Cause it's more, most guys come back with five or 600. And so guys that flew in the Delta, you flew longer missions, but you, uh, uh, you flew a long time too, so that's why I have 23 air medals, which is really unusual. Most people don't get that many air medals flying, but yeah. if you fly a lot, you do that. So I can't find a picture of the gun. I had a picture of a gunship, which is really, really cool because they paint the big thing on their face, you know, mm -hmm. they look really cool. I got it someplace in my files. Was it Huey? Yeah, I have, uh, I have rebels could... and. Yeah, we, we could Google it. Yeah, let Will Google it. Huey gunship. Huey Vietnam. gunship. Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you flew D models, right? I flew H, mo H models. H model, which was the L thirteen engine, which is a little bigger. Engine. That's some serious revision there. Yeah. So oh, that one on the left, right there. That's the one. That's a that, with the with the mouth. That's Rebel five one five two. Now, if you look very closely at that picture at the very front of that you see that little thing in the front yeah that's a that's an m79 they call them rat turds and because when you shoot them that's what it looks like it's little tiny black things coming out it just kind of dropped it's out essentially a grenade no it's a gun it's shooting. Oh, okay it's a compression grenade that shoots out like an m79 so a little ball right there yeah on the side you see that canister sitting there that that there there's one of they're essentially 105 rounds mm-hmm uh like a like an artillery shell, and then the guy standing in the doors got a six, 60 caliber machine gun. And there's one mm. on either side of him. And that is Vietnam. 
that's Vietnam. That's yeah. normal setup for Vietnam. Now, uh, look at uh, search for a uh, Cobra gunship. Yeah. And type in Vietnam. They were, we, because uh, they definitely, they're, they've gone through several re reiterations. Yeah. Yeah. They even have single single seaters. I think they did was the first first iteration. I think was a single seater. I could be. Yeah, wrong. the Cobra was a unique. They didn't test it. It's funny because they produced it, but they didn't test it. They just put it in action, and it's a tandem seat aircraft. It's uh, it's designed to carry a lot of weapon configurations so that they can. Uh... Oh wow! Look at that. That's a good photo, Will. Yeah. That one's firing rockets. Yeah. And that was, this, and, the, and then uh, future ships, gunships, they, they had tandem seats too. Is, is it, you know, the Warthog, you know, they're tandem seats. Yeah. So it's a, it was an effective platform, uh, but uh, it, and the, one of the differences is it had a better rotor system, so it could, it could dive down better than the other one could. Interesting. And that. So it could it could really, uh, but you had to stay at altitude and then you roll over and dive down. They were, they were amazing aircraft. The helicopters, imagine all the helicopters they had over there. They're just everywhere. Yeah. It was what they did. It's how you got the troops in and out. It's the way they handle things. Yeah. And that and it was a, it was amazing change in terms of the way they produced warfare, uh, in a country. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So I spent a spent a year over there. Came back and um, and uh, <laughs> one of the things when I was at Fort Sam, they told us, "Don't you come to base and go back to home when you go downtown? Don't wear your uniform or stuff like that, because <laughs> because uh, we were all nasty people at that time." Mm. And it was kind of interesting. It is interesting. They didn't appreciate you. Well, and and the, the military started sizing down, and so uh, um, uh, they were encouraging a lot of people to get out. And I, even though I was offered a commission to stay in more longer to go to commanding general staff college and stuff like that, I chose not to stay in because mm. I'd been married uh, like four years and and uh, was only with Trisha a couple or just half the time or something. So it's not a, it's, and, and, and my observation was, is the guys that have been there a long time, all of them had more than one wives because mm. they, they marriages just didn't last, you know, mm -hmm. so. What, what was the animosity that existed um, against soldiers? I mean, why, why did that happen that way? It's, it's interesting. I, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I know Jane Fonda wasn't helping anybody out. She, she but... came to San Antonio, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A piece of work. She yeah. Is, yeah. People weren't people weren't too thrilled with that. Well, it was it was it was the pot smoking generation that started and the anti-war stuff. And um, yeah, we don't we don't we don't need to show a picture. She was Fonda. very naive about the world, and you know, <laughs> and uh, but what she didn't realize is that she caused a lot of harm to people that. When she was in in North Vietnam, she didn't realize this, and they gave her secret messages, and she basically reported them. So they were tortured afterwards. There's a guy in my, yeah. There's a guy in my oh, I heard that American story Legion, went. yeah, and he's like, man, you bring her word up, and he, you know, she's just, uh, she's she's one of these. It's it's like it's like going against your country, but you know, uh, uh, 
she didn't i don't think she was smart enough to know what she was doing to be honest with you yeah no i think that was a i mean that was a weird thing you got to um, protest something and that was the avenue that they pr protested yeah and you don't realize that most of these were uh, you know i would it was interesting you look at my origin says i was volunteer okay Mm -hmm. The reason I was a volunteer because I signed up to ROTC and I was a commission officer. Yeah. So I volunteer. And then there was the drafters, okay? And people that talked about draft people and people that went to Canada and stuff like that. I think that's fine. I don't care about that. I don't want them there. If, mm -hmm. if people don't want to fight, you don't want them with you. You want them with you, yeah. If, because that's not their world. It's, and I, I don't have any problem with that if they want to do that. The naive part about it is, is that if everybody does that, then we're in trouble because mm -hmm. whether we like it or not, there's idiots out there and he, and Putin's showing his story. Idiots out there, if they have the power, they'll just do whatever they can. And, mm -hmm. and you think that he didn't invade Ukraine after we totally shit on Afghanistan? <laughs> okay. After we bailed. You talked yeah. to, you talked to guys that were fought over there and then we bailed on him and walked away like stupid you see the look on that general's face on the plane? God, he was, he could have shot himself. He just, you know, he said, he realized that was the stupidest thing America's ever done, okay? We could have pulled out, we could have done it but better, but we ended up putting people that, that didn't listen, putting people in the White House that didn't listen to the military. Because mm -hmm. you talk to the uh, people at the, at the, at the um, Pentagon, they weren't asked. Mm -hmm. There was a plan, they were never asked. So if we're not careful, we get too naive. And this is there's a history in our country of that happening. World War One, uh, it happened. You know, uh, a lot of uh, there's a lot of stories of us saying, "Why would we enter this war? Why would we enter? We didn't enter the war. We didn't enter the war in um, Second World War until uh, uh, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor." Right. Okay, we weren't really engaged in it until that happened. Okay? Mm -hmm. we were, we that was were, kind of the white required justification, yeah, of, uh, effectively. Yeah, and so uh, uh, the shame of it is, is that I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think war is stupid. It's the dumbest thing humans do. Mm -hmm. Okay, the naive part of it is, is that you think that because you don't want to, your enemy's not going to do that. Right. Yeah, there's people out there that don't give a shit about anything, and if they can take advantage of it, they'll take advantage. That guy in North Korea is the dumbest person on the planet, okay? okay. God, I mean, just, you know? And one of these days, he's just going to go just a little too far, and it's going to force other countries around him to do something about it. And the person that ought to do something about it is China. They ought to do something about it because they're going to get everybody in trouble. Okay? Right. Because he's just, if they, the problem is that if they make mistakes, they'll, they'll make a mistake, and they'll set a rock up, and it'll end up hitting Japan. Mm-hmm. That'll be the mistake, and it'll happen because those things aren't, uh, you know. I imagine a lot of smart people in North Korea, but there's always a few dumb ones too. Mm -hmm. And if they do the wrong thing, yeah, they're always shooting it over top of Japan. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it, and if it just and, and you know how crazy those rockets are, even in our own. Yeah, world, if something goes yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah. So sooner or later, somebody's going to make a mistake, and then it'll and uh, then it's going to cause a lot, of, a lot of misery. There's been a lot of talk about. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about the fear of nuclear war right now, which is very interesting because I mean, it was, you know, you know, they talked about a lot, particularly in the sixties, early sixties, Cuban missile crisis, I'm sure. Right. We all see these historical documents of, you know, our, our images of, of kids, you know, 
you know, ducking under the duck and cover that whole thing. Right. Yeah. I, I saw yeah. a picture the other day on Facebook where a bunch of kids, they were all, it was a joke cause it was make fun of Mariah Carey. I laughed very hard, but, um, it was kids all like, um, in a hallway and they're all at the edge of the hallway, like kneeling down, ducking down. And, um, it was pretty interesting that we had that point of having drills. Um, we're not doing that now. I mean, we're not to that level, but it's interesting because I don't think there's ever been a time. Like I remember the cold war. I was like very young, you know, eight, nine, 10. Right. Yeah. I was aware of, of the conflict between Russia and the United States. I didn't really understand the concept of what a cold war was really. Um, I do now, but I mean, it was, it was one of those where I just, from my visual, it was like, well, rah, rah, America, you know, Russia's an oppressor, uh, of its people and that kind of thing. Older, now that I'm older, I really just, it's kind of like, no, these were just ideological concepts at the same time. I'm not a fan of their methodology. I think communism is not good, but I, I've never really seen it pulled off in a way well, where me, it works. Let me tell you about my experience. Nor, nor like real socialism, like the Nazi style socialism well actual in, socialism in mongolia when i went there after i retired mm -hmm. i had a chance of meeting the president of the country and i had lunch with a finance minister in which i learned an awful lot and he told me an interesting story he says you know during the time that uh, russia was oversaw mongolia they called it the golden years mm -hmm. i says why is that he says well they they give you a job. They they educated you. All the people I knew there spoke two languages. They spoke Russian. Mm -hmm. They sent them to Moscow to teach them education. Uh, they they built buildings for them. They you know they protected them, and um, and they give them a living. And then one night they just got up and left. Mm -hmm. I mean literally and they ran out of money. Gone because the progressive movement didn't work for them because it wasn't producing enough feet enough things back mm -hmm. the other thing uh and so he says it was a terrible time and it, it happened in a lot of the european countries too that they people just they quit having babies there's all kinds of stuff and so you can just go too far with that idea and it didn't work and some of it is that russia is not good about taking care of their own country they trashed their own country you look at places in uh, western uh, western part of the country or eastern part of the country they just trash their country they don't take care of it Hmm. Um, they're not good environmentalists. They just, you know, just use this product up. They, they've hmm. taken whole big lake lakes. It was one of the biggest lakes in the world. They drained it to build, to build uh, wheat and stuff like that. But the problem is now they're invading Ukraine to get more wheat because they didn't, they don't, they're not good mm -hmm. stewards, stewards of, their own, of, the, of, of the environment. Of yeah. Of the country. Even Finland has turned away from them and, and Estonia and all those places. Well, I can see why Finland did. I mean, it's terrifying. What what they like? You're sitting yeah. there and you're watching. They literally came into Ukraine. How they did? Yeah. And Finland's got the longest border right along there, and right. they're just like, okay. And, which was a, I mean, is is Finland part of NATO now? Will you go? No, no, they're no, they're just talking about it. They're just talking. Yeah, but Finland was part of of uh, Germany in the World War Two. Okay, they fought with Germany. Finland did. Did they? Yeah. Because they didn't have, any, they didn't really have a choice. Okay, but after the war, well, didn't they, they invaded everybody, yeah, right? I yeah. mean, Germany literally invaded. I mean, Denmark. Yeah, I know that. Wasn't Sweden kind of like neutral territory-ish? But the Nazis were still had a presence there. Switzerland, Switzerland one hundred percent was. Yeah, but yeah. I can't remember historically. I well, but it wasn't. Was. It wasn't strategically important. The problem 
The problem was is uh, Stalingrad and, and and Germany got bit off too much and and uh, but, uh. but if you go if you look at if you look at the history of who lost people in World War II is the Chinese and the Russians lost. Yeah, people. Russians lost a ton. 20, 20 million people. I yeah, mean, the Chinese lost many because of Japan. Japan just Yeah, and you can, yeah. You can see why you can see why they some of their behaviors that way. So war is an interesting challenge in, in our life. But if you go back to the roots of it, it all has to do with the reason Japan uh, attacked us because they needed our oil, okay? Because we cut them off. The resources. Oil. They need resources. It's all about resources and stuff like the that. The same thing with the Weimar Republic, it, it failing. I mean, there was a lot yeah. of uh, yeah. there was a lot of embargoes against them. They couldn't get helium, so they had to use hydrogen for their blimps and stuff like that. Yeah. Thus, the Hindenburg and. Yeah. You you go yeah. you go take a look at Vietnam and I've looked at Vietnam now on Google and it's really interesting to see it because all the Delta that I flew in and the West Coast was the Yumin Forest where I was shot down one time. Mm -hmm. It is all beautiful uh, crops, okay. Mm -hmm. And then they built a big uh, a big dam up north in in uh, Tukor where I was up by the by um, Lake. They built a big dam because they needed they needed to secure the water. Mm -hmm. and stuff like that because water water just appears in vietnam because the because it's just where it is well it's only 200 feet above sea level so it's you mm -hmm. know if you, that's like you see those bombs you, mm -hmm. you put a hole in there and a few days later it fills up with water mm -hmm. so it's like parts of our country we drain the water off we don't irrigate it but th they needed to divert and do stuff like that and it's and it's a very productive looking country and that's why if you talk to people from Vietnam, which is interesting because it is a communist country technically, yeah, right? Yeah, and they've and they've done very well, but they've also been a lot of Chinese and they're buying up a lot of space, a lot which of territory, and a lot of stuff, causing you know? problems. Yeah, that's well, why we sold them F sixteens. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a but it's a beautiful country, and uh, um, that's why war doesn't do anybody any good. It just creates a nonsense. We um, uh, when we were over there, we. We had a lot of people that we would use as uh, as guides for us and everything like that, and and a lot of them made it to America, and they a lot of them live in in Corpus Christi and all kinds of places. A lot mm -hmm. of them didn't, and they had problems. I went to a, a orphanage one time at the request of some nurses and doctors to give shots to these kids, and this is this is an orphanage in Canto, along the river, and I'd say about third to half the kids in that world were very tan, uh, obviously American kids mm -hmm. you know, that, that soldiers had, you know, yeah, yeah. impregnated and just and walked away from because these people didn't have any way out. Where, where And where was that? That was in Vietnam? That was in Canto, along the river down in the Delta. Yeah. And, and mm. uh, the nurses were uh, Catholic nurses that had an orphanage there, and we went in and gave them shots and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I just imagine what happened to him. I saw an article a while ago about some of these kids that are now adults in their 30s and stuff like that and all the challenges they had because they weren't treated well by the population after they left because mm -hmm. they were they looked different, okay? And whether we like it or not, uh, Vietnamese people didn't like the Cambodians. And, and I, I, they says, I can't tell them apart. They could. The Cambodians had curly hair. And and we're a little little different looking. Uh, the Vietnamese tend to have a little taller and straighter hair, hmm. and the mountain yards look like 
Indians from America, you know, hmm. they, they were very Aboriginal looking people and stuff like that. So even in their own country, they were prejudiced against groups of people that lived in their own country. Mm -hmm. And then you imagine these. That still exists. That's, that's like Asia. Yeah. Like that's, yeah, that's just exactly. how Asia yeah. is, yeah. which is crazy. But like we worry about our country having racism is what we call it, but it's like, we're now where we exist now. It's like, we're pretty much racism light. You can still like when it comes to when it comes to the Asian company countries, they're, uh, they're, they're a little rougher on each other. You know what I mean? They, yeah, they have Japanese still don't like the Chinese. Chinese still don't like the Japanese. They still, well, you know what I mean? How many times have the Chinese and Japanese fought over the centuries yeah. and stuff like that? So, yep. so uh, what we did was we introduced some interesting culture to it. Okay. But it, now it's funny because we fought a war with Vietnam, but we're actually better we have a nice relationship yeah. with him. Even no, though... A friend of mine's going over there over Christmas. Yeah. Um, yeah, his dad um, His dad went to Vietnam on a bike trip with his wife, and they loved it. Oh, yeah. They're just absolutely... So now, now they're like, oh, okay, we should go there, you know? So they're actually going to check it out. I, uh, if you go up into Cambodia, which has settled down a lot, you got some great... Mm -hmm. monuments of past history and so like so it's a great place to visit the shame of it is is that um, there's always some there's going to be more and more in the future of challenges because of resources that's why china's trying to buy up africa okay and a lot of what they do because they are buying they, up they, lots of it congo they, they've got tons of it how how long did it take them to land in afghanistan about 20 minutes i think because they were there helping them with their network internet system and stuff like that so mm. Uh, the biggest lithium deposit is sitting there right in Afghanistan. We don't need any one. lithium. What do we need lithium for? Yeah. That'd do with electric cars, I'm pretty uh, sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So that was my experience. After So after I got out, I went to work for a trade college for a while. I started it up. Eventually turned into Ogden Trade College. Okay. Okay. So uh, I just uh, was just a small piece of that. I'm not, I'm not really part of it, but those were de being developed at the time because the trade schools were trade schools. That was a new at thing. The time. Yeah, they didn't happen. And now the trade school in Ogden is a beautiful building. And the Wallace guy named Wallace uh, was a friend of mine, uh, ran that for years and did a great job of it. And they they took over the old high school. So like most hmm. people don't know that it was the old Ogden High School. They took over and and developed some really good programs. We started off by doing air conditioning and stuff like that. And when I was hired then, there was a job opening up at Logan Hospital, Logan LDS Hospital. Okay. And I went up there and interviewed for it. And um, I was hired. So this is in your mid-20s. I was 20, I had to be 25. 24 or 5, okay. Yeah, 25. Mm -hmm. And I was just a young kid. And it was really interesting because I went into the meeting, sat down. The minister of the hospital, a guy named Theron Godfrey, and Marianne MacArthur was the head nurse, and, and I can't think of the other guy named Finance Guy. And we went in the meeting, sat down, and and they had a prayer. Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, it was this is a LDS hospital, right? It was well, a Latter-day Saint hospital. Yeah, and uh, and that was really strange for they me. They probably do the same thing in Catholic hospitals still. Well, of course, but it was just really strange because I didn't. I, mm -hmm. Boy, I'd been in the military, and I didn't, I heard the words, but not just not as, expecting that. Not in that order, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so. Uh, and that was my first introduction to the healthcare. I wasn't sure, and I was hired as a as a as a human resources and, and purchasing person. Okay. okay, so I was over the material supply and the purchasing. And about oh six seven months later, he made me assistant administrator. Okay, 
and give me a whole bunch of other departments. And what degrees did you have for that? I had a bachelor's degree. That's all I had. You did have a bachelor's yeah, at this time? Yeah. Okay. What was uh, it in? In business. Okay. All right. It was yeah, essentially. That's fine. It was public relations. and It was, it was um, political science and business okay. classes. So I'd taken all the accounting. And, it and, wasn't like an English degree. Or no, anything. no, 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 no. <laughs> and, uh, but I had, because of my military experience, Working in hospitals, I had a I had a unique knowledge of the language and how the hospitals work. Because, you know, I um, when I was at San Antonio, I was a chief operations officer uh, for two years, and I had two I had a field hospital, a surgical hospital, an air ambulance unit, a field hospital, and I was responsible. A, mm -hmm. um, and and and, uh, and so it translated so that it, information translated. So I knew I knew all the people and all the parts and uh, mm -hmm. worked a little bit different in the military because you didn't have medical staff meetings and some of like that. But that's uh, it, it translated. So Theron Harvey's and he says you work out just fine. About a year after that, or a year and a half that, I got into a graduate program at University of Minnesota, which was mm -hmm. essentially an outreach program. So I'd go in there and I'd study and come back, and it was a new kind of concept, but. Um, a lot of my colleagues were involved in it, and that's how I got my degree in hospital administration mm -hmm. through the University of Minnesota, which is one of the better programs in the country. Um, there's a lot of programs out there, but Minnesota is, if you look at the big hospitals at that time and people run them, Minnesota. My boss, Scott Parker, went to Minnesota, and he was my, he, he was my advisor through the program, so... I got to spend a lot of time with him. Very specific, right? It was hospital administration, hospital administration right? Very specific. Yeah, and it taught me what I was already doing, and that's why the program worked so well because you'd, you'd write papers. And the reason I did papers so well is because I, I married a lady that is perfect in English, mm -hmm. and she w I'd write these papers, and she'd make them really look good because <laughs> I have the worst run-on sentences on the planet. You know, I have the same problem. Yeah, I have the exact same problem. Well, I inherited that from you, well, probably. Tris is uh, well, you know, I don't. I English was never something I cared about. You know, I just yeah. And uh, and uh, if I was going to school, I, it it would be other stuff I was more interested in. But uh, because of that, I, I I and then I got an advanced degree in hospital administration. Uh, uh, then I then I was asked to um, go down to Southern Utah and run a hospital. I thought. I don't want to. There, he 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 says, the ability to be a minister, even the smallest hospital, gives you advantages that others don't have. Okay, so I went down there and started, and they were just rebuilding the Panguitch Hospital, mm -hmm. a brand new hospital, and became the minister of it. And we had three doctors that would show up, including uh, Don LePay, who you know, is, right, and a couple other Doctor Bezik and stuff like that, and Doctor Reams, and Doctor Reams's dad was. The doctor for the black, uh, the the uh, what was that, fighter pilot group in in uh, World War Two? The black, they flew. Oh, I can't think of his name, but uh, Pappy Boynton. It was he, he was the medical doctor for that, and I actually met okay. the guy. So we all got together and we sat in the room and I said, "Okay, well, how are we going to do this?" And I said, "We each signed ourselves in the area, stand them over the emergency room, and something, and Reeves did the surgery. We all." split up the hospital and put it together into a new hospital because they didn't have they had they were in an old building that was built by the church in the 20s okay, okay. this would have been like early 70s yeah in the early 70s 75 so we put that together 
And then we put, and then we built two or three outreach clinics in Escalante and Tropic and one in Circleville. So they'd go to outreach clinics and we made the hospital work and that rural hospitals weren't supposed to work and we made it work. And we got a joint commission credit at rural hospitals don't, that doesn't happen. So we were unique among the hospitals that also built my reputation up. Okay. And then Gene and I, a guy named Gene Beck and I got mm -hmm. together and I says, I got an idea. Let's pull all these rural hospitals together in Southern Utah, okay, from St. George mm -hmm. uh, to Richville on that and make it a region, okay? And he was reluctant about it. He said, it won't work. And so we did it. And I became, he became the, uh, uh, Vice uh, Vice President of the region. I became Associate Vice President of the region. We covered, mm -hmm. we had those hospitals, and we created a model that uh, built those hospitals. And that's when we bought St. George Hospital. We fixed Cedar City Hospital. We built Delta and Fillmore hospitals. An idea that I had to build modular hospital. Let me tell you a little bit about that. You go to you go to San Pete County. You go to Delta. You go to Fillmore, there are three hospitals that are all basically the same. They're built in a monster hospital. And why I came up with that idea, Design West was a design company out of Logan. And his name was Tony Wagner, who's the head of it. I went to him, I said, I have an idea. I watched them build a hotel in San Antonio by just putting big squares together. Mm -hmm. It's on the riverfront. Mm -hmm. I said, I've never seen that. That was the neatest thing I've ever seen. And he walked in it, and the room was almost completely done. And they just put it together and tied it together. And it's a very sound hospital, 20-story uh, building, okay? Mm -hmm. I said, why can't we build a hospital that way? So we built three hospitals that way out of a factory in Logan, shipped them down there. They're like giant trailers, you know? Yeah. And they could only be so wide, but they were stronger because they had to secure them to move them and stuff like that, put them in place. And they were 25% cheaper because they wouldn't do rural hospitals. I see didn't want to do rural hospitals. Mm -hmm. But when we did that, we made it accessible and we made it then and we recruited people. And so that's why they have these nice little hospitals in town. And if you need to expand it, you need to, I build it in such a way that you need to expand it, you just order a module and put it in place. So I need okay. the lab needs to be bigger. Just order a modular for the lab and put it in place. It's all designed and ready to go. Mm -hmm. I, I built it at a 20-bed hospital and expanded it up to a 120-bed hospital. Mm -hmm. So it could grow that much because each each component grew out. So mm -hmm. it was never tied in. So you didn't back something up to something you couldn't do it. You see all these hospitals, they're, they're just they're crazy because they... I can't grow this way because I, so I have to, where do I put my labs? I don't have room to put the labs. So you can mm -hmm. see in the basement. So, uh, the, so when I, and then after that, then Theron was moved to Salt Lake and they needed administrator in Logan. So they asked me if I was being interested. And I went up and interviewed for the hospital in Logan and became the administrator in Logan. I remember that. And that's when, and you were born in Panguitch. I was. Um, well, I was there. I mm -hmm. saw that. <laughs> I was going to say, what's interesting, you were talking about the modular hospitals, this, this building that we're in right now built connex size mash units that were, that were military. Really? Yeah. Wow. This building, the reason why we, the power that we have to operate our laser and our equipment, um, for not this podcast, for the other business that yeah. we run out of here, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that power that we tapped into, that was just sitting there doing nothing. The reason why they had so much power there, up several units that we piped down here, is was for building those units. That's actually what they did in this building. Wow. So they were connex size. They had to be a connex size mash unit that would like fold out, fold out, 
and then uh, voila, there's your your uh, pop up hospital yeah. for military yeah. purposes. Yeah. So pretty interesting. It was called. Cool. We had it as a field hospital. It, it looked like a little square box, and you'd roll it out, and you'd have it up and running. Mm-hmm. They used to even practice them. Yep. Stuff like that. That's yeah. what they built here. I think seventies, seventies really? and eighties. Yeah. Wow, because that's that's what we used in San Antonio hmm. when. Uh, and we we used to they were assigned to like the 101st Airborne of those strack units, so they have a hospital follow them. Okay, mm-hmm. so they could be up and running pretty quick. Hmm. Stuff like that. That was really interesting. Okay, so Logan, you became a hospital administrator, and then that was a brand new hospital. That, that was a brand new hospital. There had just built, and then they moved to Salt Lake, and uh, so I was lucky to get that one. Uh, again, most people didn't like it because most administrators want big hospitals, but it was it was a beautiful hospital, and it was it was it was it was. I was only like a kid, but yeah. it seemed pretty big to me. Well, it was uniquely, it was, yeah. It, it, well, it wasn't a giant hospital. It wasn't like LDS later on. It was, it was really, it was our biggest hospital. But uh, I enjoyed it up there, and uh, I learned a lot about how to run a hospital, and and even more because it was more complex. But then that's when I started total quality ideas and stuff like that, which um, uh, I I stayed close with Minnesota and other places, and I saw this coming down the road, and so I started developing that total quality management system in IHC. And so I started what they call case management. I, I wrote a, when I was in the hospital, when I got sick, I wrote down all like these. This, this last time you got sick? Yeah, I was sitting there thinking, cause I was in the hospital and the case manager walked in and I, I started laughing. I says, do you know how this came about? Hmm. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, I'll have to find it sometime. Uh, but they didn't know anything about how the case management had started in IC. I said, well, let me tell you the story how it started. And because I, uh, you remember Leland Danes? You know Leland? Sure. Leland was an ER nurse, and I asked her if she would help start this program. Case management is when you bring together the nurse, the doctor, social services together to talk about the patient, both before as they come in and after they leave. So it's a more of a continuum so you can take care of people. They were encouraging people not to stay in the hospital very long and it doesn't help them to stay long if they don't need to be there. Right. And the case management is a way to help follow them and then we created home health programs that help follow them at home keep, so they can get taken care of. Person comes in and says, well, who's taking care of when you get home? Well, my wife's there, but she's 75 and she's, she can't mm. walk. That ain't gonna work very well, but if you get home health person come in and help them out. So, we did what they call case management. And we started that and eventually it came, it's become a standard in healthcare and a standard in IHC, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Mm-hmm. I also started home health programs in IHC. There was one of my KD, but they never did anything with it. I got a grant, Robert Wood Johnson grant. I wrote the help of Marta Clark and we wrote this grant and Robert Wood Johnson grant got money funded and we started home health agencies all through this rural hospitals. and. And the reason I did this, I found out like in down in Orderville or down in uh, in um, Tropic, there were nurses that lived there that worked at the hospital that were actually taking care of people uh, in their community. Mm-hmm. Okay, it was twenty miles from the hospital. Yeah, but they'd come in and borrow stuff from the hospital or steal it. Mm. So I got up certified, and so that they could get paid and they could take better care and they get better equipment and stuff like that. 
So um, home health became a, a, a really interesting way for a lot of people that don't have to be in the hospital but can be at home and still be taken care of. Hmm. So that became a standardized. Now it's a big program. I mean, that's the way everybody should do it, and they do it. So it was when I was in the hospital, it was kind of fun to listen to the fact that the lady came in. She says, so she started asking me all these questions about this stuff, and I just started laughing because I thought it was really funny. Because uh, I also told them the story about when I was in the hospital about uh, when we built IMC. I said, do you know where the chimney is? Nobody knows where that smokestack disappeared to. Oh, that big one. Yeah. Yeah. I says, I got a secret. And I says, I know where that is. He's no, 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 you don't. I said, the one they knocked, they knocked it down, right? Yeah, they knocked it down. They were going to haul it away to the West Desert. And they ended up putting it in the road system in front of the hospital, encapsulated, because it wasn't, didn't have nuclear stuff. It was just carcinogenic. Yeah, it's just... Yeah. yeah, carbon so mostly. So it became the road base for the road in front of the IMC hospital. Oh, the new big one. Yeah. The new giant. Yeah, isn't that funny? Hmm. Well, recycling. No, nobody, nobody knew that where that came from. It was really funny. So my time during the during my work at IC, I did, I did modular rural hospitals. I did started the total quality management program. Became a big thing. Mm-hmm. I did the measurement standards for IC. I wrote the measurement standards, which in finance includes as a measurement standard for quality. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the finances, you can't, it doesn't support the rest. And this came about from a lot of stuff from Minnesota, too. Um, I did the rural outreach integration. I taught it all over the country. And I've got a bunch of articles written about it. I started community relations committees in IC. Uh, I see had a terrible reputation in these communities, and I, I started one in Logan. I got a lady named Sarah Sinclair, who was the head of the nursing home in Logan, to chair it for the hospital. Hmm. And we brought in all, all the people that didn't like the hospital and started a committee, the social services, the county, some somebody from the county commission, the city council, and all those people to come in. And pretty soon, they were talking about the problems of what we need to do and how we need to do it and help solve it. And, and it became a, a community way of solving community problems, both healthcare linked and other stuff, including transportation. They didn't, there was no bus system in Logan. We worked on stuff like that. And, and Sarah Sinclair was really good about chairing that committee. And I just kind of sit there and just grin mm-hmm. and feed her information and help her the best you can. And she was really bright and, and very articulate and, and, it, and then the reputation of the hospital became a lot better. One of the reasons it became a lot better, too, was we had the press was really anti towards everybody, particularly healthcare. I hired a lady uh, uh, who was uh, work at the university in the community relations, in, in a, they wrote the little hospital the paper for this university. Mm-hmm. I hired her at the hospital to write us a, a, a newsletter and not put it, I didn't put it in the Herald Journal, I put it in the university newspaper because it went further, it had a bigger distribution. And the, so mm-hmm. I had an insert in and we could tell our story. If you went to the pre, the local Herald Journal and you give them an article, they throw it out, they said, we don't do this stuff, we're not working for you. And they just, and they come in and create bullshit stories that, one lady came in one time, wanted to write about the cost of health care, and she said, what's the cost of aspirin? And I showed her all the hospitals, told her how it worked, and you have to keep track of everything. And I went in the pharmacy, and I said, so what do we charge for aspirin? She said, we don't charge anything for aspirin. 
when she wrote the story, she quoted a Florida hospital that charges ten dollars for aspirin and <laughs> made it think it was our hospital. That was what caused me to say, "Okay, I'm done with these people. I'm not going to do that anymore." So, so uh, I helped. Difference between a for-profit and non-profit. Well, for, I mean that's that's a for-profit. For-profit gets their money from stock, okay? Right. And they pay taxes. Uh, Non-for-profit gets their money through bond through bonds uh, through the county, okay? Mm -hmm. And they don't pay taxes, but they do charity care, okay? Mm -hmm. And if you ask a for-profit hospital what charity care is, they'll tell you it's what they write off for Medicare. Mm -hmm. That's just a normal for. For nonprofit, for, for nonprofit hospitals, we don't pay attention to that. Charity care is what we write off extra for that, and it's millions of dollars a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, um, LDS was over a million dollars a year for that. Plus, we do charity care clinics. If you ever talk to a for-profit minister and say they do this, ask them where their charity care clinic is, and there isn't one. Mm. They don't have them. Mm -hmm. Okay? And... Uh, but there's there's a community standard that you have to take care of. When, when we started doing that, then then everybody started uh, started turning around. And the reason the for profits used that against us because they wanted to buy us, okay? Because mm -hmm. they wanted the profit out of these hospitals. So they take twenty percent of profit of the hospitals. Nonprofit hospitals take one or two percent, and they put it back into their fund for buying equipment. Hmm. So it's a whole different model they use in terms of that. But they make you think they're stealing from the company, and they're not. It's, it's, they don't provide extra resource to the community. If you call a, a for-profit hospital and ask them to write off your bill, they'll sue you for it and take you to court. Mm -hmm. Okay? So now uh, University Medical Center is a nonprofit system, okay? Mm -hmm. And they get a lot of... They get a lot of headache over there because they should write everything off because it's medical school. But the truth, the state only gives a few million dollars to the medical school. The rest of it's just by themselves. So, hmm. uh, so if, on the other hand, for-profits have started to, started to reduce their behavior in that way because they took so much crap about it because hmm. they, 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 over, they overdid it, okay? Hmm. If you go to... Uh, um, but my opinion is their quality of care and is good. You go to, because they, they attract people that are more interested in money than serving the community. Not always the case, but you can find some good examples. But you go to Las Vegas, the Sunrise Hospital, those guys, they make 40% profits. Wow, that's huge numbers. And the county gets, the county hospital gets, gets um, uh, uh, money from the county in the tune of $40, $50 million a year to support them because they have to have so much charity care, see? Hmm. So, uh, you're paying for the taxes no matter what. Uh, the other thing I did was the Olympics. I was responsible for the medical service for the Olympics. Uh, mm -hmm. A few other things. I remember this. I got to go see Dave Matthews and I, the snowboard I competition. Got, I got tickets for you guys. You oh, guys, sweet. You guys. I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Olympics was an interesting experience and I... <clears throat> I see did a good job because we were able to attract doctors throughout our system to manage the, each one of the venues and both university and, and IC. And uh, I got nursing directors who were really good to manage it for with the doctors, so added extra support. And then the other volunteers filled in. So hmm. it turned out to be a really good system. Hmm. All right. Back Dr. Rog, Jock Rogan. And Mitt Romney both, and they, they give me a plaque and things. 
And um, the, the Olympic Committee gave me a plaque. I got it home with all these stuff in it. Talk about how well we did for the them. And Dr. Rock says this is the best he's seen in terms of medical services for Olympics. He mm -hmm. was the chairman of the committee for 15 years or something like that. So mm. we did a good job. But, uh, and, and all these doctors that did it, they did it for two or three years. They volunteered their time. So, and they, at first they whined a lot and afterwards they were hugging me. Because mm. it was a great experience, you know. And for mm -hmm. me, uh, at the finals for the um, speed skating, I was leaning on the mat. They, I wasn't in the stands. I was leaning on the mat mm. when they went around the circle. Mm. And, I, and I got to meet all these kids, you know, Pig Moose Street and all these people that were, and um, and I, and uh, I got, in fact, I got a, I got things sitting in my hallway signed by the speed skating team. I don't where to right. hang it. I don't know where to hang it. It's just sitting there. It's going to get damaged. So you need to take it and hang it. What sometimes. do you do with those relics? Yeah, I don't know. So twenty years old. Yeah, but it's worse. It's it's. I'm willing to bet if you took those things to the um, antique roadshow, you'd find out they're worth a lot of money. You think? Oh heavens, hmm. yes. Well, when you get the, when time. you get every gold medal, <laughs> I got one plaque with every gold medal speed skater there ever was. Sign it. Dedicated to me. Hmm. With her signature, and I bet it's worth a few bucks. Yeah, at least at least two dollars. Frame costs that much. <laughs> well, that's all I know. Unless you want to ask me questions. Oh yeah, no, sure. You kind of jump past like there's all sorts of fun stuff we could, we didn't look at a lot of the Vietnam pictures you had. Yeah, if you want to go through there's a some bunch of those. those, you want to go through. Let's look at some of those. Yeah. Well, like yeah. this one. Let's talk about this one. That's a Dao Chang. That's me on the right. Yep, that's you. Who yeah. are the other dudes? Willis. Uh, I can't remember the other two guys. I get it written down at home. The the guy on the very right side. He got wounded in in the Iron Triangle, and he took a he took a bullet in his hip, in his, Ouch. on his cheek, and it lodged up against his. His in his buttocks. Yeah, I was gonna buttocks. say that that was the Vietnam movie, like the Vietnam movie that you guys, or at least you, I asked you, and I never thought of this was Forrest Gump. You were like, "Oh, that was a Vietnam movie," <laughs> and I'm like, "That's not a Vietnam movie. That was Forrest Gump." But that, when we really come down to it, that was it. Did tell the story of Vietnam vets, at least in a positive light. Yeah, yeah, it did. Most yeah. of them were just made you guys out to look wackadoo. All the rest of them, but that was a good one. Okay. Well, years yeah. later, I was talking to him on the phone, and his kids was telling me how his dad got shot in the hip. And I said, "No, he didn't. He got shot in the ass. Everybody knew that." <laughs> he says, "He been telling you that all day." I can't think of his name. He was really, he was a medic, and and Simmons, I think the other kid is, it was a crew chief, and that's your crew. You have a pilot, uh, aircraft commander, a crew chief, and a medic. Yeah, you were aircraft commander pretty much, right? Yeah, I made it pretty quick partially because I had a lot of flight experience and two, I was also uh, kind of second in command. So I made it easier for them to do it. And then it was all, it was more about judgment than anything else. It was, hmm. you know, having good common sense. What else do we got? Well, let's look at some more. Now they, you guys were the originals. The reason why you guys were the originals was because you were the original dust off, right? That came up. Yeah. That's that, how it worked. Yeah. 57th was the original yeah. dust off. Yeah. And, um, and uh, that's a ship sitting in 
first up, and that, and you can tell it's in first up because there's Batman and Uggs by the tower in the background, and that and uh, that's my ship because it's got white skids on it. Yeah. I was googling one time, Will, and I randomly found a picture that he didn't take, but I randomly found a picture of him on a uh, on a. Uh, I couldn't find it. I went back and looked for it, but it was it was you on a uh, uh, a roadway. Yeah, I've you got landed that. on it. And I was Actually, like, I got that picture. Did yeah. I send it to you? Maybe yeah. I sent it to you. Uh, in fact, I think Will's got it. So you keep going. I got, it kind of tripped me out because I'm like, that's not a picture you took, but that was a picture of you. Yeah, I've had guys come up and give me stuff pictures once. Oh yeah, time. right there. Yeah, yep. you, you can tell it's me sitting yep. there. I was like, hey, wait, that's. In fact, I can tell you where that is. That sound of that's south of Kamau. And uh, recently on the road, I'm waiting for them to bring a person out the, uh, down the road because they, it was fighting them, and they didn't want me to go any further because it was too dangerous for them to load. So we were waiting there uh, while they, and you see in the background, they're bringing some guys up. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it was pretty cool when I saw that photo. What else do we got, Will? Should, there's, there's more in there. Oh, is that like a, what is that? That is, uh, that is when you know you got an action going on. That just the front is that part napalm? Of, the front part is napalm. The back part is white phosphorus. You see the white phosphorus yeah, yeah. burning. Yeah, and they're uh, that would that would hurt people. White phosphorus is really nasty. Yeah, it doesn't stop burning. Yeah, you it see, just hits your skin, and goes right through you. Yeah, and that's some battle I was going to. Wow. It's a rough one. Pretty gnarly. Okay, what else do we got? Did it drop? Oh, that's just all your, all his medals. Yeah, it's just pictures of my stuff. He, he, he had a ton of medals. I mean... You got a bunch of them. You got the Distinguished Flying Cross, right? Yeah. That was one of them. Yeah. What else did you have? Oh. Bronze Star or something like Bronze that. Bronze Star, Purple Heart. This picture wasn't mine, but it's, um, I got it. But it shows you what happens when you, a lot of times you're in this. Did you just, that's in a hover, right? Yeah. Those guys are all you, just loading on. You can't land. And I, this, you know, I did this many times. You can't land. You got to watch your how close your blades are to the trees around you and stuff like that. And you, you, this one you have to back out of. You can't go forward out of it. And it's too hot to go straight up, so you have to back out of that one. Hmm. You yeah. had to get really good at flying then. When we are down the del Delta... that uh, That's that's on a barge? <laughs> no, that's a, that a, a riverine boat? boat that's got a, uh, that's got a uh, little landing pad on it to pick up some patients. Dang. So you got to learn. Well, the, the problem with landing on these ships are is that you, have, you can't go in too fast. You have to go slow because it'll cause them to rock. You don't want to put too much weight down to get mad at you. Yeah. Because you can, you know, it moves the boat around a lot because they're, you know, it's a boat sitting on a river, you know. Right. So you have to be careful with it. I, I had a guy cuss me out one time because it was coming a little too hot. So, okay, I'll be careful next time. That's that's what happens when your plane gets hit by an RPG. Okay, that that's not 
your ship, no, right? No, no. But that's it's one of my in my you can unit. See that's a medic. Yeah, yeah. It's in it's in the, it's it's in the, um it's a it's our unit because you can tell by the cross oh, that was our unit, and um, uh, tears the ship up. He didn't hit any fuel cells and stuff. Like yeah, was, well, he was able to land apparently. He was closer to it. He was close to it, but it was quite a hit. Woo. Yeah, that's pretty. That's nasty. Do you ever deal with that? Yeah, there's what it looks like when you're up top pulling a patient in. That's a hoist rescue. Yeah, and they bring him up, and then that, that hoist will swing back in. He's got a he's got a hold of a, his left hand. He's got the power button on it. You also have it on your stick too. If you need to run it, he gets hurt. I also had a thing on my stick if I had to cut it too, hmm. which we never did. But the. I, I never rode one of those, but that would be, this is my, uh, this is what I'm looking at when I'm flying. Uh, very center thing, that round ball, the white thing, that's your artificial horizon. Mm -hmm. The nav instruments, you know, engine instruments on the left. They measure. Um, Everything there is mechanical input, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, on the very left, there's vertical, or right is vertical indicator. On the very left, there's a, a torque meter and stuff. They measure pressure power by your torque meter. If you look at the, you, you look at the one that says RPM that says 200 on it. You see that one left of the and artificial horizon. That's your that's your uh, rotor. Is there's two dials there. You can't see them, but there's there's your rotor and your engine, and they have to sync up. So, hmm. and um, you notice that 200 is about as fast as you can go in those things. You don't want to push them any further. Well, that's, that's 200 knots? Yeah. You want to cruise. You cruise mostly about 150 knots most of the time, which is going pretty fast. That is that is pretty fast. I mean, that's more than 150 miles an hour. Yeah. I mean, it is. Here's another picture that your friend sent me that uh, was our unit. And uh, I remember that. That's down, picking a patient up for the um, for the. Uh, 82nd Airborne south of us. And you can see they're not as in the, they're in more open areas and stuff mm -hmm. like that. This is north of a place called Coochie. Hmm. And you see the original, so you know it's my ship. And yeah. The, and the guy that uh, took it knew the Rebel 5152, and he says, I got a picture of you. And he goes, huh? Because he was there too, so. Did I get this one? Yeah, I think, yeah, you did that one. Yeah. There's one that's all over the internet that's at 3203 JPEG that you have there. You can Google dust off and that one pops up all the time. Yeah, this one is an icon because it was used by uh, the lady who uh, wrote a book for um, the 57th out of F, uh, out of, uh, Saudi Arabia or wherever they're fighting over there in the Middle East oh. it, but different ships is can I use this picture for front of her book and so it's become an icon picture for dust off uh, and that's why it, and it was taken by uh, I'm not sure who took it I think uh, he had my camera and was taking a bunch of pictures I'm starting the ship up Preston's on the right and they leave the doors open when you start the ship up why is that Safety reasons. Just in case you got to jump out. If he runs, if he runs up and waving his hands, you better get on the ship quick because it's on fire. Uh, although I never had that occasion to happen, but you have to be careful.
I think we went through most of them. I think the one you haven't gone through, Will, is that very top one that's just uh, just that one. Now, that's the, the two units that we had down in the Delta. The uh, Yeah, so that's the slogan right there, when I have your wounded. Yeah, that's the, yeah, yeah. 82nd Med Detachment. Yeah, when we, when we went down the Delta, we put in Navy Bantui, we put those two units together, which gave us 12 ships to cover the whole Delta clear up into rock jaw which is north of the Mekong river uh, so hmm. cool a long time ago you got any other questions will you got anything you wonder about not particularly no that, that, that covers everything it covers most of the history yeah. of uh vietnam like, i was supposed to have like a two-page you you totally shouldn't be saying any of this right now what? just kidding <laughs> you probably have to edit it out i don't know maybe we won't yeah it's like she'll she'll never she'll never listen to it you know what i mean How many times did you get shot down? Five? Yeah. Well, that's I, kind of a lot. I'm a good pilot. That's why I'm still here. And what, none of them were my fault. That you were shot down? I mean, I didn't run into something and crash or anything like that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. The times I run into, it was just a blade strike. I hit a few trees over there, mm -hmm. and uh, one night I was flying, and, and uh, I landed on this road, which is between Lycay and Daoqiang, and the guy says, can you move closer? And I says, okay, I picked it up and moved up. It was a dirt road, moved up this dirt road about another 100 yards. It was hard for them to move, so 100 yards is a lot for them. Mm -hmm. And I moved up. Uh, to where the rest of the unit was. There was I was landed by unit. And as I sat down there, there were small bushes next to me. And I pushed the bushes down. And then when I landed on the ground, they came uh, and uh, reduced the power. The bushes come back up and hit the blades. It just sounded oh. like I was getting shot at. It just scared the crap out of me, man. It was a, mm. But the but the, those those trees were, were not big, but they were big enough to, to dent the... Into the, the blades, yeah, damage so, the blades, yeah, because the blades were just they're aluminum with a covering over them, is what they are. So they're strong, yeah, you kind of need those. The front part of it is a big, is an aluminum spar, and then and, uh, then the aluminum goes back over, but in between it is a honeycomb of it looks like a looks like a beehive, it's a type of composite, yeah, yeah, it's just mm -hmm. beehive made with aluminum, uh, they fall out, it gives it strength. So, so the, the 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 leading part that you're saying is made out of aluminum is probably a protector. Yeah, it's a spar. It's a protector yeah. to yeah, it gives protect it the rest of the blade. I watched them show a movie at one time of that. They attached a camera to the blade, 
and those blades just they they go they're just like a really a wave. They, 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 they ripple they move around a lot they i think they've stiffened them up since then but they used to move around a lot more than i thought they did it's kind of scary and um you gotta remember the tail rotor we used to do some side flares and stuff and the tail rotor the whole tail spar is only hooked on by four bolts and medic uh, crew here come look at this and he showed me the rear end of it and it had rippled down the tail and i said you he says you gotta quit doing that <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're putting too much torque on the whole system you put too much pressure on the system yeah you have to be careful and, uh, what's the okay so i'm gonna go there on this one what's the craziest crap shiz <laughs> What's the craziest thing that you you felt like you were in as far as... I mean, it sounds to me like it was pretty common to just experience like this was crazy, right? But what was the one that was like... Or what ones were there that were just like, okay, that was, that was about as crazy as it gets? Well, I think the worst one was when I went in on a morning pickup. I've written... I wrote this down for Trissa. Mm-hmm. And uh, the clouds had risen up, and the came on it was over elephant grass, and we started taking a lot of hits real quick. And uh, I moved closer to these guys, and then the engine just quit. Just you just hear it whining down. So I just you don't know why it just it had to hit some vital area. I don't know what it is, but that's unusual for that. The engine would keep running even if it was on fire. Do you think it got hit? Well, something. something got hit. The compressor stage had to get hit, or something got hit. That it may have been just a fuel line, but it, there was no fire. Okay, mm -hmm. so we just, we just, I just settled down into this. It was interesting. I sat down this elephant grass, and someone had been pushed down already, and I just chopped a bunch of elephant grass. So, uh, and I said, "Well, I said, oh, let's get out." So I get, I saw off to my left because I was in the left seat. Mm -hmm. There was a guy that fell down. He was one of our soldiers. And I says, I'll go get him. And I, I got out and went over uh, and kneeled down by him. And he'd been, he was dead. He got killed. Mm -hmm. And as I was kneeling down there, people were running by me a few feet away, you know. Mm -hmm. And I just laid down because it was the enemy. I was on the wrong side of this little battle right then. Yeah, and basically, from how you told it, basically everyone had exited the other side of the ship and went yeah, the other way. Yeah, went the other way, yeah, because mm -hmm. that was where our guys were. I just went over to pick up this guy. So I realized I was I was on the wrong side of that situation, so I laid there for a bit. And then I, I kind of stayed real low and cre creeped around because it was really thick stuff. And uh, I moved around well, 100 yards or 200 yards, and then I got near this. Uh, this uh, it was it was the edge of a berm that they used for the for the rice field, and I was kind of laying behind that. And I watched our guys getting picked up and flying away. And I thought, oh shit, because uh, they thought they, they later on they told me they thought I'd been killed because they saw me laying over there. They thought I was dead, hmm. but they didn't come and get me. They just they knew it was bad because there was a lot of fighting going on. So, uh, and I I got really nervous about what to do because it was getting it was it had been 
half the day down then. So I started moving back further south, trying to get closer to the ocean and down further, the thicker. And I had, I know they spotted me because they, I could hear them hollering. So I kind of moved down into this jungle, which they called the Yumen Forest, which was just like the Everglades. It was very thick and very brushy. And, mm -hmm. and there was, if there was a trails, but the, off the trails was water. You know, um, like how, how like, far are you traveling in this thing? Oh, I'm not going more than a, a half mile or so. Okay. Because you can't get, you can't go through this trail unless you're on a trail, and if you stay too long on the trail, you're gonna run. It's just something. really thick. Yeah. So you don't have a machete or anything. You're just trudging through yeah. thick stuff. What's interesting about it is now if you look at that area, it's just all pretty. Oh, they probably turned to farmland. It's you know, all it's agricultural. There's no and, more, yeah. no more human forest. It's all uh, farmland. So I got down there and I, I hid down and, uh, and I remember what Dennis Davis used to tell me, which was a, a guy I was in flight school with. He says, if they get close to you, don't be careful not to hold your breath because you'll gasp and then they'll hear you. You know, brief shadow and, uh, and, the mos and it was starting to get towards dark and the mosquitoes were nasty and I didn't have any mosquito deed or anything. I didn't expect to be flying mm -hmm. down there. So I covered my face with mud and hands and tight, you know, you had long sleeves anyway, but you got to tighten them down. You went all predator style, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yep. I put mud on my face and <laughs> they were just, I mean, they were just you know, like, I mean, you can't tell how thick they were. And I sat there for a while and I thought, no, this isn't going to work. I'm going to, I can't stay here too long because if I stay here too long, they'll just find me. So I knew my direction. I knew where I was. I knew where I needed to go. Uh, not far north of me was a little, little base that they used for refueling, but it was, probably two or three miles up the road. So uh, I just slowly started walking up the trail and then when I'd, and I'd walk so long and I'd duck back into the jungle. The guys in, in the flight school, those things said, you gotta get off the trails because you're running something. Well, get off the trails, you're in swamp water up to your waist. Now I wasn't gonna be food for leeches. So, mm -hmm. I, and you can't walk very far. You can't, you know, and you can't swim. It's hard to get, it. it's hard to move through it. You can't mm -hmm. swim in it, so it's, um. So I just slowly made my way up uh, and uh, saw a few people and was very cautious about interaction with them. And uh, uh, and this went on for most of the night because I, I would hang out and I'd just get into the weeds and I'd just stay there, you know, cover myself up. Because they were out hunting up and down this trail now, with flashlights. Are you in North Vietnam now? No, I'm in... I'm You're in, in South Vietnam. I'm in the, I'm in the Yubin Forest. If mm -hmm. you go to... Um, uh, you can't get Google. Was it like on Google Maps? Yeah, if you get on Google Maps, I'll tell you where I was. So, oh, cool. So just just go into uh, see where see where the you way down see where Canto is. Just keep zeroing in, yeah. Huh. Okay, go further south. Yeah. yeah. See that's Ho Chi Minh. Canto right there. Yeah. Keep now, going down. Keep you... that's Ho Chi Minh City. You gotta go clear down to the Dell to see where Kamau is. Right. See now, okay, now, see where Rock Jai is? Okay, now if you if you go west of Rock Jaw, see where that green patches are south of Rock Jaw, uh, in in the in the, yeah, right there, yeah. Go a little more to the left, okay. Okay, 
That at that time was uh, jungle. You gotta go further. Let's get some some sat view or a combined sat satellite view. Um, there's a way. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay. See, now it's really nice, pretty land. See how very green that one part is. Yeah. And see, in the middle there, where that one place is, it. It, it's really thick jungle. It's really swampy. It's very swampy. So I was down in that area down in there, okay? And there were trails up and down that area, but it's close to the ocean. And I knew we had a little uh, refueling base not far from there. So I was down in that area, and I just made my way up one of those trails. This is crazy. So they were... What's crazy to me is like, so it's like, where was the fighting in Vietnam, right? Because it's just this big, long sliver, right? But it was basically everywhere. And, yeah. and and so that's one thing that I think is probably really very definitive of how difficult of how this war was is because you guys didn't know who who was. We didn't keep the territory. You, you didn't know who was on your side. I mean, the, technically no. the South Vietnamese were on your side. But they were in, you were fighting in South Vietnam. You yeah. weren't fighting in North Vietnam. I never assumed that a South Vietnamese who weren't. You just didn't know. In our uniform was this, on our this side. It's kind of the yeah. same problem these guys in Afghanistan had. They always had, there was always that question of, is this yeah. guy on my side or not? Yeah, you had to be very careful. Uh, so when I was, so I moved along the trail and as, as it got closer to the sunrise, there was a little teeny village. And I'm talking about a bunch of huts, okay? Uh-huh. But by one of the huts was a little motorcycle, a moped. But as I observed it, there were some guys talking to this one guy, and they were Viet Cong because mm -hmm. they had AK-47. They were talking to this guy, okay? Mm -hmm. At night, they were hunting out there with flashlights. I never saw a flashlight every time I flew over there. So they had a way around. They were, you know, the jungle at night was there. They couldn't see. You couldn't see through the jungle, probably. You couldn't see through the yeah, canopy. Yeah, because it was it was thick, foresty, uh, watery. Mm. And when they left, I waited and waited and waited and waited, and they left. I went in and... and um, couldn't speak the language, but I had a gun in his face, mm -hmm. and he understood the language. And I got on this, I got him on the moped. He started up. He knew where I needed to go, and I and I, I just pointed, and he started down the trail, hoping that we didn't run into anybody or drive by anybody. And after about thirty minutes, he he knew where he knew exactly where to go, mm. and he just drove me up to the camp. I walked up to the there's a little guys there and i said well, you call my unit tell them to come get me and so that was the end of the day hmm. and uh i wrote about that later and one thing i remembered was get some deet and put it in your pack you got a little you know put it in your pocket Carry deet from there on yeah because it does work and um and i i looked for a, a radio you didn't have those emergency radios but the air force had some i went to the air force and got an emergency radio Hmm. So it actually works, you know. But interesting enough, nobody was hunting for me. I never had any ship fly over me or anything like that. They just thought I was gone. They were going to come out in a few days and see if they could find a body. Because uh, the Viet Cong would never mess with the bodies. They'd just leave them alone. Hmm. Let, the, let the animals eat them. So that was my night out. That was one of the, my worst uh, experiences I had over there. Hmm. And uh, and uh, interesting thing about it that I learned from Ed after I got shut down that first time was I got back in the ship the next day mm -hmm. flew my flew my 
Missions. Missions. Did it. If you don't get back in, you start thinking about it, you'll start thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Quit thinking about it. Just get back and do it. Try not to dwell on how bad it could be. Doesn't mean you're not jumpy and you're not weird, but just get back and fly again. Mm-hmm. So that's the way you do it. Hmm. Cool. That was a bad day out. Yeah. I called it the smell of sunrise because I didn't think I'd never see the next day. And that's why I called that chapter the smell of sunrise. Because hmm. it was nice to see the sun come up and I was still cooking, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Uh, pretty wild ride. Yeah. Bad day at work. Yeah. That was probably, you would say that was your worst? Yeah. One of the worst? One of the worst, yeah. That's, yeah. There was other rough ones. Yeah. Well, when Roy got killed, it was a bad scene mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It got, took a lot of hits. It, this stuff happens so fast. It's mm-hmm. not like it's, it's a, this is a long were, t- were you hit too when Roy got hit? Because he, yes. he was next to you, right? Yeah. You were hit too. And- yeah. When, w- with Roy, was it's just south of Lycae, it was in the Iron Triangle. It just happened so fast. I, I got the ship out of there, got some guys out of there. Landed in a nest of them and come back to the, uh, I lost my hydraulics. And then when I landed, uh, my, uh, my, uh, my, um, skids broke too. Mm-hmm. So, and I just stopped it. But you had to uh, probably just come in fast, right? I just come in and landed. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I was good. I just come in and landed. I didn't, I just rolled it down and powered off real mm-hmm. quick. Cause I was thinking more about getting Roy help cause he took, Two or three hits, and so on, and that's when Jensen, his name was Jensen, got hit in the butt in mm-hmm. the back seat. So, and so uh, uh, the the ship took. That's when that you see pictures of the ship being hauled away. That was mm-hmm. the ship that got got all those hits. It took a lot of took a lot of hits. So it took. Uh, I think they counted over 50 rounds just in the cockpit area and so I had a picture of the dashboard one time and I was looking down at it because all these bullets come through one bullet came through and just missed my arm here and went inside my chicken plate and smashed and so I had these little pieces of crap on my right arm here and then on the left just you know I'm here because I flinched that's all I, otherwise I wouldn't have been here and when uh and then I flinched up a little bit, and you look at the back seat, and there's two bullets on the back seat, just an inch down from my back seat. So I was just just pure ass luck, you know. So mm. it must have been a reason why, huh? I got those pictures somewhere. I don't have them in my files, but somewhere I'll find them someday and show them to you. Mm. But looking at the looking at the dashboard with those bullet holes coming through, it was like kept looking down at it. The hell is that? And it went right through the IFF, which is International Friendly Point. Went right through it. That was the one that came through. There's a there's a bunch of us getting That was a couple of days later they come up and Okay, there it goes. Get it? It's loading. It's loading. Okay, there it is. Now, if you zoom in on that, you can see Captain Fosbaker, lieutenant at the time, standing there. Yeah, that's me. 
Nice, you guys have a little basketball hoop? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Is that regulation height? Uh, I can't tell. I, I think it looks like it's a little cheater height. It's like know. a nine footer right there. You guys were, you guys wanted to feel like you were taller than you really were. I don't know. <laughs> and those are those trees behind you. Those are those are the those are those are the you can tell what those are um, rubber trees. If you scratch them and they'll bleed out, and you can go over it a few days later and pull it, and it's like an elastic. Hmm. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of white dudes in that unit. There's mostly white dudes. You got two black guys though. Yeah, Davis is one of the guys in front row. That's one of the guys that flew with me. Uh, which one? Guy in, uh, on the very right. You see him coming over. Yeah. Um, the black dude on the very right. Yeah, yeah. It was Davis. Was he? Uh, what was he? White nurse? He was a he was a medic. He was a medic. Yeah. Interesting. That's a detachment. It's not very many people. Well, should we call it quits? Yeah, I think let's call it good. Um maybe we'll do another one sometime. <laughs>